Uh, welcome everybody to the first episode of the Dharma Warrior podcast. Uh, I'm delighted to have my uh, friend and colleague Kalavati Devi, uh, or Dr. Christy Smurl, whichever you would like to call her, uh, here with me today for the first episode. Um, I couldn't think of a better guest to have uh, for as the first guest. Um, Kalavati recently contributed uh, our first guest blog article on uh, the dharmawarrior.net blog, uh, which was titled Yoga, Life, Transformation Beyond Fitness. And so uh, we just wanted to get together and have a little discussion on the same topic. And I'm delighted that uh, you could do this on short notice. Um, we had planned on doing it this coming Friday, but I've been on a waiting list for oral surgery and so I'm going to be a toothless mess uh, from this Thursday onward for a little while so uh, I'm happy that you were able to uh, to meet with me today and we can uh, do this before I enter my period of reclusion. Um, Thank you for So uh, yeah it's been great getting to know you through this collaboration and it's an honor to have you here today. Uh, so we're going to talk about yoga, life transformation beyond fitness. And uh, we spoke for a couple of minutes last night, or more than a couple of minutes, I guess, uh, and just about the same subject and what we wanted to discuss. And last night was a special uh, holiday, um, Jan Mashtami, which is uh, celebrating the birth of Krishna. So we were delighted to get together last night and it is also uh, another holiday uh, celebrating the emanation of Kali or Mahakali Jianti. So uh, it's a very auspicious time for us to get together in both of our traditions as well. So it's great to be here. Uh, did you have anything that you wanted to say off the bat? I was going to do just a little uh, introduction and talk just about where you're coming from and what you're bringing to the discussion and sort of, and a little brief biography. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. I look forward to the discussion and look forward to um, more. Great, I really look forward to it as well. Uh, so Kalavati Devi, or Dr. Christy Smurl, uh, has a doctorate in Ayurveda from the American University of Complementary Medicine. She is a nurse practitioner and master of science from the Loma Linda University, uh, an Ayurveda and yoga educator at Southern California University of Health Sciences, an advanced yoga teacher trainer with the E-RYT 500 uh, certification or 500 hour certification, and Param Divya Adi Shakti Sant Mat Devotee and Parashak. And Prasharak, sorry, uh, also a devotional musician and artist. Would you like to maybe just expand on that? Uh, it's your uh, resume. You can maybe uh, explain a little better than me your background and where you're coming from uh, with your uh, yoga practice. Yeah, thank you for that introduction. You know, yoga has been really an important developmental place for me in my life. I didn't start formally practicing yoga till I was about 30 years old. 
And at that time I had really reached like this peak in my medical career and I had finished all my college studies and I had a daughter and everything was, oh, wow, you know, but I felt very emotionally and spiritually bankrupt. And when I started finding the practice of yoga, it completely changed my, my whole aspect on life and my life trajectory. So it's really become my primary devotion in life and i've since taken sabbatical from the hospital and i'm really focusing more so on my spiritual development so i think i've been able to see kind of both sides of the road and like i say oftentimes that medicine the way it's currently being practiced in some models is what i call the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff and to truly find wellness our was that big key to find that prevention and that true, as we call it, holistic medicine, which Western medicine is dramatically lacking. But then in addition to that, to really incorporate in the yoga and the spirituality has made the world of a difference to me and a lot of my students. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And when we spoke last night, I said to you that uh, I felt that this is a great subject for the first guest blog post and the first podcast for DharmaWarrior.net. And uh, I was incredibly excited about that. And we started talking about where we were, uh, or our backgrounds in yoga. And I said that I felt like I was coming to it with more of a spiritual background than a lot of people in the modern day. And I had sort of made the assumption that you were as well and you sort of corrected me like no I um you just sort of told me a, a funny story about one of your first classes that you went there and you had sort of had one expectation but then you found yourself sort of sniveling on the mat by the end of the class um, yeah for me I started you know traditional yoga classes or I should say formal yoga classes, I often giggle and say, I didn't go there for the spirituality. I didn't realize yoga was a form of spirituality. For me, I just wanted to go and, you know, have a good fit body. Of course, I thought it was all about fitness as most of our Western culture, not most, but much of our Western culture misunderstands. And, you know, the poses weren't that difficult because I was young and fit. And at that time, I found each time I would lay down on the mat at the end of the class and she would say, okay, now begin to breathe and begin to clear your mind. And every class I ended up crying on the mat. And I thought, this isn't what I signed up for. I didn't sign up for psychological healing. You know, I signed up for a fitness class. And I quickly, very quickly, within a few weeks, realized that yoga was much, much more than a form of fitness. And it was a way to completely transform your way of life that a lot of people in the Western world are never exposed to. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure a lot of people come to a similar sort of experience they start practicing yoga as well that they would come to it for the physical benefits and start to realize that it, that it has a lot of other benefits even if you are only practicing the postures and breath work like most modern uh, yoga classes uh, and so yeah absolutely 
when I do a yoga teacher training, it's not until about the third month of yoga teacher training that the students learn asana. And they might go through anywhere from 20 to 40 different full day intensives and only about one fifth to one sixth of those classes include asanas. And sometimes they'll ask me, you know, are we gonna take more yoga poses kinds of class? Cause that's what I'm gonna be teaching in the community. And I'll say by the end of the program, you should know that asana is only a small fraction. The physical body practice is only a drop of what yoga is. You know, we often see that analogy of, you know, this yoga pose up on top of the surface, but then underneath are all the roots and that's where the magic happens and doing all the other portions of yoga, not just the poses. And when we spoke yesterday, uh, we talked about uh, the eight pillars of yoga, as you mentioned them in the article, and how before you reach postures or asanas, which are the third of eight limbs, uh, you have the yamas or the five abstinences, or and the niyamas or five observances. Um, and would you say that those are placed first and foremost within the eight limbs because um, they are important? Or we certainly, I guess, discussed that the topic last night or the idea that the yamas and niyamas are sort of there to set you up for success so that when you sit down to meditate or when you sit down to do yoga, that you don't have all of these uh, things that you've been doing or not doing in your life that are eating away at you and you close your eyes when you try to calm your mind. You know, I think Patanjali, Patanjali put them in that order. But when we read things like the Bhagavad Gita, they're not necessarily um, separate or exclusive. We want to make sure that when we fully understand yoga, that we're looking at it as, as an entirety and that all the limbs are interdependent upon each other. But I do believe, you know, when I do teacher training program, I always start off with the fundamental principles and we study deeply the yamas and the yamas because when we take a look at what is our human project? You know, why are we here? Why are we born? What is the goal of this human incarnation that we're in? And if we bypass and skip the yamas and niyamas, we often are just kind of spinning in an unusual direction. And like we talked about yesterday, it's often very difficult to get down to the core of truly knowing yourself if you skip the yamas and niyamas in this particular eight limb approach. Mm. Yeah, and we can go into them even more detail. Perfect. Um, so I guess the, that just brought to mind one quote that I wrote down from the article uh, where you said, ultimately the journey of yoga leads the seeker to samadhi, soul integration and union with the infinite source of creation. So um, it just brought to mind uh, when we were speaking last night or how I was saying that we talked about how the uh, yamas and niyamas are sort of there to set you up for success or so that you're 
not living a life that is in disharmony with your yogic practice because it doesn't make a lot of sense to to sort of be avoiding the fundamental aspects but then looking to your meditation practice or looking to your spiritual practice to help you get your life together from a top down kind of perspective right when there's a lot of things that you could be doing on a base level just to sort of take care of those fundamental things to begin with and then when you sit down to your spiritual practice or to your yoga practice that has already been you're not trying to depend on you're not coming to your spiritual practice to try to clean up the things that should be cleaned up in your life already now that's a, a hard thing for some people to understand that if we bypass things like the yamas and the yamas, when we sit down to do our meditation, you know, we're, I like the analogy of we're a mirror and whatever we are processing inside, what is unresolved inside, what our mental disturbances or vitiations are, when we sit down to meditate, that's oftentimes what gets mirrored right back at us. And so people will say, I don't know, I just can't meditate. I have a very difficult time with it. And I always encourage them, go back to your yamas and the yamas and see, are you practicing these things that help facilitate the entire process? You know, if we're going to try to take into consideration the fact that yoga in some definitions, we say it means to yoke. Yoke with what? Yoke with your soul, yoke with the infinite. And if we are sitting here constricted and in conflict, that is a obstacle. That's a limitation. So the meditation, the concentration, the self-actualization process is going to be very difficult until self-study has been done extensively. That totally makes sense. Uh... So I guess we've sort of talked about the yamas and niyamas uh, generally. Do you want to get into maybe talking about a few of them specifically? And I can just read through uh, what you had to say in the article and then we can expand upon it from there. Sure, that'd be great. So... Here we are. Uh, yamas. An initial tenet of yoga is self-examination and cultivation of an honorable life path. The first limb of yoga outlines five yamas. Yamas are abstentations or behaviors promote personal development. The five yamas are ahimsa, satya, brahmacharya, asteya, and aparagraha. Ahimsa is the principle of nonviolence. This concept can be extended to include avoidance of physical violence, killing, violent actions towards self and others, gossip, and even thoughts of hate or dislike. Ahimsa encourages us to live in harmony and respect divinity in everything. The second yama is satya. Or I guess maybe we should uh, stop there and talk about ahimsa for a minute. Yeah, you know, ahimsa is a really important concept. Um, if we take into consideration the fact that yoga means to try to yoke with your soul or yoke with infinite source, but we have conflict inside of anger or we have 
violent tendencies inside. We have to realize also that that anger and violent tendencies is going to be mirrored back to us when we try to yoke. And that it's a limitation in the sense that, let's say, I see an animal. When we really begin advanced yoking, we understand that that animal is also divine. So how am I to take its life without acknowledging that it's divine? And there becomes conflict within us. If I'm going to go out and be hateful and hurtful to other people, or even to myself through speech, thought, or action, I'm actually committing that himsa, because ahimsa is nonviolence, I'm committing that himsa towards divinity. And when I go deep into meditation, is this what's going to reflect back at me? We want to eradicate as much of himsa from us as possible. Of course, you know, then some students will say, well, what about self-defense, etc.? I'll say, well, you know, that's your personal path. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't mean be a, a doormat either. Yeah, and that is something that is... Uh... For me, uh, coming from sort of warrior path, being involved in martial arts from a young age, and um, that I've always contemplated, and that's another thing that we, I guess, spoke about yesterday as well, that um, we were speaking about the Bhagavad Gita and the fact that it takes place in a battlefield and not in your typical setting for a sacred text where you might expect the dialogue between Krishna, uh, incarnation of the divine and Arjuna, who is a warrior. And so uh, I myself took a lot of inspiration from the Gita upon reading it uh, in that it sort of puts in perspective uh, that not all of our battles are necessarily in the physical world and that the most important uh, battles most often happen in an internal battlefield and you had sort of some interesting things to say about that as well. Yeah, well, I think it's really important for us to understand that the yamas, the niyamas, the different limbs of yoga are really a way to create self-mastery. And when we say, you know, to stand up and fight, to go into that battleground of life, it's not about going out and killing people or being violent. It's about the challenges, the suffering that we have through life. And even if you look at certain translations of the Bhagavad Gita, you know, in chapter one, there's all these extensive names, names of the king, name of the prince, name of the sons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you look at one of the translations, my favorite translation, you can see that these names translated properly are actually showing us that it's an internal battle as well that we're working against the ego affliction, that we're working, you know, towards dharmic lifestyle, that we're, you know, dealing with our actions and our karmas 
but it's reflecting an inner battlefield. And, you know, that comes back around to people will say about, you know, fighting. And I'll say that, you know, martial arts training is not about picking a fight. It's about being competent to end a fight. And really, if we look at the eight limbs of yoga, we're trying to end the fighting within ourselves and come into that peacefulness, that still surface of the lake where we're giving a beautiful, true reflection of the soul's light because it's the soul is not stained. The soul is not imperfect. It's us, our perception, our actions or non-actions that are creating the ripples, clouding the reflection of the soul's beauty. So, you know, I, I tell people yoga is not always easy. It can be a big battle inside. Mm-hmm. No, that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, so, I guess I'll move on to uh, the next one of the yamas being, I believe, Asteya. Just one second. I was wrong, it is Satya. (laughs) So, um, the second yama is Satya, truthfulness, not telling lies to others or self. Satya encourages keeping your word and aligning actions with words and thoughts. Living a life full of lies can create disturbances deep in the psyche, drawing us further from self-actualization. Did you have anything you wanted to say to expand on that? Yeah, satya is very important. At the end of the day, when you close your eyes and go to sleep, you know if you're living a truthful life. You know if you've told the truth in the day. You know if you've had truth in words, truth in thought, truth in action, unless you're delusional, then you may not know the difference, but that's another story. (laughs) And at the end of the day, if we have all of these non-truths existing within us, then we're we're conflicted. We know that we're not living that straightforward path. And it's not about being perfect. It's about not having the disturbances in us. And when we're doing things like lying to others or to ourselves, we're not able to establish that direct knowledge that we are actually walking our path. So it can be difficult. You know, my Guru Mansha always says, don't lie to people. Just tell them the truth, even if they don't like it. And I think that sometimes in this society, we're too afraid that people will judge us, reject us, marginalize us. And so we kind of create this flowery story of the truth. But at the end of the day, we know that that's not true. And that can cause a lot of mental disturbances within the person so it's i always say it's the best policy just go ahead and say it sometimes you don't say to everybody you have to know when to speak and when not to speak also Mm -hmm. i've taken a lot of inspiration from uh, guru 3m and he says the same thing just simply stick to the truth that there is plenty of people out there selling falsehood and lies, right? So 
it's no uh, sure. incredibly no honorable uh, <laughs> path in the modern day just to stay oriented towards truth and to not be uh, swayed by just the the simpleness of falsehood sometimes as you were saying that sometimes it's easier just to sort of tell someone what they'd like to hear and get through a simple social interaction or or get through your day a little easier but when you go to close your eyes at night you know the times when you were true to yourself and the times that you weren't and there is something virtuous or something to be said about being able to stay the course and to keep what is important and what is true to you uh, in sight on your path. Yeah, you know, and it's really about finding your own internal personal truth. And what is that? You know, why did you come here? What is your passion? Can you live out the truth of your life? It can be very difficult for people. And when we're not living out the truth of our life, it shows on the inside. It shows on the outside, depending on, you know, how much you allow to show. But the closer in alignment you come with your truth and you speak your truth and you act your truth, then there's more self-actualization because that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to know ourselves and fulfill that as long as we're not harming somebody else. That's why first we have ahimsa. So as long as we're not oppressing somebody else or harming somebody else or something else, then we need to live our truth. And it can be easy in the modern day to uh, live a life where we don't really find any reason to look deep within or to confront our deeper problems or I'm sure that there are a lot of people that when they come to yoga like you were saying you did that you were expecting to go to a fitness class and then once you try to calm your mind a little bit you start realizing that there's some things that are eating away at you or that there's some things within you that are unfulfilled or unfulfilled or unacknowledged and for a lot of people, I guess, transformation isn't going to be easy and isn't going to be quick or simple. It's going to involve a lot of sort of dirty aspects of soul searching and acknowledging things that you swept under the rug and skeletons that you've kept in the closet often for your whole life. And these things become part of us and, and remain part of us, whether we're acknowledging them or not. And yoga can allow us to, or give us the tools to confront a lot of aspects of ourselves that uh, we may be ill-prepared to do without those tools. Like, as I was saying yesterday, that I've had a lot of health struggles, both mental and physical and that yoga really uh, gave me the the tools that I needed to navigate those struggles and um, and the strength to look within and to 
acknowledge the aspects that needed to be brought to light and needed to be transformed. And that is always going to be a sort of process of unraveling. And it's something that I feel like a lot of people could really benefit from in the modern day. And so that's why I was really happy to have this, to have you contribute this article. And I feel that a lot of people could benefit from finding their own personal truth and pursuing it. It's really important really important you know and then when we look at the, the third limb of yoga you know we have to be really truthful with where we're placing our sense organs and incorporate the previous ahimsa into it you know in ayurveda we learn about the the five sense organs and how they all relate to different elements and we learn about how each sense organ has an appropriate use how it can cause disease if we underuse a sense organ and how it can cause disease, either physical or mental, mental, if we overuse it or abnormally use it. So again, we're coming back to the truth of how are we living our lives and are we even being violent, quote unquote, to our own sensory system, to our sense of touch, to our sense of feel, and are we using our five sense organs to find the beauty and divinity in life? Or are we clogging them and causing all sorts of mental vitiations with, you know, excessive TV watching or soaking in the violence off of TV or, you know, just even simple things like sensuality. Are we using our sexuality and sensuality appropriately? Or are we indulging to the point of, ahimsa upon ourselves and our path? Is it diluting us from our truth and sakya? So I really try to interplay them all in, in my daily life and ask myself, okay, how close are you getting? You know, <laughs> how close are you? Um, perhaps we can move on to the next niyama. The next yama i meant to say uh so the third yama brahmacharya uh is touching on what you were just speaking of uh, of the power of sexuality and um and the senses and uh so the third yama brahmacharya is mastery of the senses control over the senses allows retention and balance utilization of prana ojas and vitality uh, did you have anything else that you wanted to uh, say about that subject? Yeah. A lot of times in different writings or different yoga teacher trainings, depending on the lineage or the origin of the training, a lot of people understand brahmacharya as a type of celibacy and a restriction from sensuality or sexuality or, um, you know, just sex, period. And I can understand that, you know, because in Ayurveda, they do talk about the fact that if you have too much sexual discharge, that you lose your ojas, because we know that the datus, the seven layers of the body, as they call them in Ayurveda, datus, we've got rasa, rakta, mamsa, medha, asti, maja, sukra, 
So we've got all the way from plasma down to the reproductive system or the ojas, you know, that, that thing that causes us to have this beautiful pejas and just oozing with life, right? And if we have too much sexual interaction, then we have a drain of the ojas and we sometimes start losing that pejas, that vitality, that oof, what is it about that person that makes them just sparkle? It's because they have vitality. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we're using those senses in a way to reflect back to divinity what we're enjoying. You know, so I don't always just say oh, it's about celibacy. It's about using your passion, your senses, a sense of smell to pick up a flower and just go, oh my gosh, that is the best smelling flower I've smelled all day or all my life. And what do we do with it? We're sending this, this, oh, this kama, this enjoyment as a form of divinity. You know, when we sit and we eat our food, have we offered it first to divinity? Or are we just sitting there, you know, stuffing our gullet, eating all sorts of things that taste mindless, you know, McDonald's, etc.? Or are we sitting down and engaging all of our senses in our meal, touching our food, tasting the food, hearing the crunch of the food, smelling the aroma of the food? And that's when we start coming to life. So you know, some people think that brahmacharya means restricting your senses. I say it's mastery of your senses so that you're optimally enjoying life and creating this divine interaction between your physical world and that divinity within yourself rather than just being all humdrum, boring, and stuffed up tight. <laughs> No, that makes total sense to me. Thank you for sharing that perspective. I think that that is a concept that people sort of have a sort of one-sided view upon, or certainly when a lot of people hear the word brahmacharya, they think of celibacy or abstinence, or at least um, a sort of control rather than what you were saying, which is a sort of controlled experience through the senses or using the senses as a tool to have a more engaged experience with our environment. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of lineages or religions that really kind of push that celibacy and we see what that leads to. You know, there's all sorts of controversy, and I'm sure somebody will vehemently disagree with me. That's okay. You know, some of this is also going to be how I've come to understand yoga, not necessarily what was written in one book or another book. So. Yeah, the, the lonely road and the path of celibacy certainly is not for everyone. And... Um, without naming any specific traditions, it's become sort of evident within certain religious groups that uh, it can certainly manifest in some kind of horrible ways, obviously. Uh, and so... And I, for some people, it is a good pathway. That's maybe the pathway that they want to live or am happy living. 
but I don't think that it should be one size fits all either when it comes to that particular philosophy of yoga. I personally have taken periods of time where I said to myself that I needed to step back from engaging in romantic relationships just to sort of allow myself that time and space to uh, take control of my sexuality or romantic self again in a way because I found that I uh, particularly in my youth I was dependent upon relationships or I found that I was constantly trying to fill some hole in my soul with another person and then as soon as a relationship wouldn't work out I found myself wanting to find another one or looking again and I and as I grew older I caught myself in that and I was it forced me to ask myself what it was that I was looking to fulfill in myself and why I felt like that was something that had to come from an external source or from another person and how and it, and then it asks, and then it uh, forces you to think about um, if I'm looking to fulfill some aspect of myself from another person, then I've already acknowledged that I have some sort of uh, unfulfilled desire or unfulfilled aspect within myself that I really should acknowledge uh, prior to offering myself in that way to another person as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that's, there's a couple different things along those lines that you remind me of is when we look at our sense organs, are we being controlled by an abnormal attachment through our sense organs? You know, things like overeating. That is showing a lack of mastery over that sense organ of taste and eating, that action of eating that comes along with that sense organ. Or when we take a look at sensuality or sexuality, if it's leading us in an abnormal direction or away from our dharma and our spiritual path, then we need to gain control over it. And it reminds me of this uh, saying I once heard, and I'll probably paraphrase it, perhaps not quite the same way, but this woman stood up and she said, And I've heard it since. One day I looked at myself and I realized I had a hole. A hole right in the center of my being, of my core. And I realized it wasn't a food-shaped hole. It wasn't a shopping-shaped hole. It wasn't a sex-shaped hole. It wasn't a drug-shaped hole. It was a God-shaped hole. And she had to really work, you know, like we advocate in yoga, to master your senses and make sure that you're not being led astray through the, you know, mindless seeking of things that are taking you off of your dharmic path. And some people it may require celibacy or may involve celibacy and other people that might be completely the opposite. Uh, Okay. So Perhaps we can move on from Brahmacharya. I think we've probably covered that subject. Um, let's see here. The, uh, the next, uh, next yama, the fourth yama, Asteya, uh, discourages stealing uh, or encourages non-theft. So um, 
what would you like to say about that? Uh, you know, I think that when we look at these yamas, we're looking at just some core fundamental things like don't be a creep, you know, <laughs> don't take stuff from people. When we take things without permission, we're in a way creating a, a type of violence, you know, even when we oppress people, oppression sometimes comes in the form of stealing stealing from them or stealing their opportunity or stealing their birthright or stealing their identity, stealing their ideas without giving credit. And, you know, when we look at all the different religions, most of them, I believe, say don't steal because it's just not nice. And at the end of the day, you know, it wasn't yours. You know, you took it unfairly. And again, that causes for some people, disturbance. Some people don't have a disturbance with that. You know, and that leads us right along the same line with the, the fifth yama of apigraha, of not being covetous of things that don't belong to you. You know, so when we're, it, it ties into one of the niyamas too, of santosha, being content. But when we're not content, when we're not creating our own peace and stability, then we tend to want to take from other people. Oh, but that will make me happy. That thing that they have will make me feel better. That thing that they have, I want to covet and take as mine. And again, that comes into truthfulness and it comes into the ahimsa standpoint of not taking, stealing what doesn't belong to you. And a lot of times I say that the yamas are, don't be a creep to yourself and to others. Mm -hmm. And there is one thing that came to mind uh, when we were talking about Brown that uh, I should mention before we move on. And that was just that it came to mind that uh, with the yamas and niyamas, um, that a lot of the time it is... Uh, encouraging you not to sort of indulge too much in a good thing that uh, that it's showing you that even things as you were saying earlier when you were talking about himsa and ahimsa that that often something that would be considered good like food or exercise or something uh, that is ultimately meant to benefit us and can be taken to a limit where it becomes violence against the self. And that can be said of so many aspects of our life that people will latch on to something that feels like a easy source of happiness or joy, whether that is an addiction or a person, place, thing, anything, you know, there are so many ways that people, uh, look for those easy quick fixes and quick sources of a high or a rush and it um we sort of take granted that the things that bring the true joy and the true meaning in life often aren't so simply obtained and that that <clears throat> there is a reason yeah. that, you know something like that. Well, and if we're not able to, if we're not able to establish that 
consistency of acknowledging how we use our sense organs, we're much likely to have more difficulty when we get down to pratyahara and withdrawal of the senses. If we're always just sending our senses outward, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want all this. How are we even going to get into meditation? Because we're not going to be able to master the art of pratyahara and withdrawing all the senses to go deep into meditation. Then the monkey mind won't be controlled because it'll always be wanting, wanting, wanting. Uh, that did come to mind earlier, and I was going to mention it when we got down to Pratyahara and when it comes to withdrawal of the senses, because you were saying earlier that uh, we can create such a more meaningful engagement with our world and with our experience or environment, however you want to phrase it, through through brahmacharya and through engagement of the of our sensory perceptions um, but that it's uh, important to develop that in a healthy and controlled fashion and to use our senses for divinity you know to see what's divine to smell what's divine to taste what's divine not just gluttony and coveting things of that nature because then there's never enough we're never satisfied and so uh, was there anything else that you wanted to say about the five yamas before we move on to the niyamas no i think that's a pretty pretty good summary for people to chew on already yeah i feel like we got into the the concepts uh, on a bit more deep of a level than, than I was anticipating, but in a good way. So, uh, okay, let's move on to the five niyamas or five observances. And just allow me to open the article here. Actually, before we do that, uh, there is a, a quote from you here uh, that finishes off the five uh, abstentions. Um, and I quote, the world is full of shiny objects that beckon our sense organs deep into the veils and waves of chatter and sway. Further, we stray from the soul's light rays, Kalabhati Devi. Um, and it's true, there are infinite shiny distractions out there that will call the mind towards them and uh, yoga is there to help us learn to cultivate that inner peace and inner knowing and inner truth so that we can come to a more uh, meaningful experience of self without feeling the need to constantly look for some sort of uh, gratification or just or uh, validation from others or the external world in general. Absolutely. It's very important. So uh, niyamas, the second limb of yoga, lays out five niyamas. Niyamas are observances or behaviors that guide us towards self-actualization. The five niyamas are saucha, santosha, tapas, swadhyaya, and ishwara, Pranidhana. Pardon my pronunciation. Um, 
not exactly Sanskrit Hari. So, uh, Saucha translates as purity. Purity can include cleanliness of mind, body, speech, and surroundings. When mind, body, and life are cluttered, contaminated, or disorderly, it is more difficult to radiate soul purity. So, uh, yeah, I feel like there's uh, some interesting points to touch upon in there. Is there anything that you wanted to say off the bat on the subject of Saucha? Yeah, Saucha is very important. You know, people will come to my teacher training program. They're like, I didn't know you're going to tell me to clean my house. It's like, yeah, we need to look at how are we keeping our environment? You know, if we look at the practice of feng shui, it's the practice of creating the flow of chi and prana around us. If we live in a rat's nest, chances are the mind is also looking a bit like that as well. But really, we want to look at just the fundamental flow of prana. How is the prana flowing around us? The environment that we place ourselves in will then also determine how much prana we have available to us. So, you know, I encourage people first, look at your environment. You know, do you have, I've, everybody has like a little junk drawer sometimes or one room that's kind of under construction. But if you look at your house as a whole, if you look at your, you know, space as a whole, if it's not in order, get it in order. And it may cause mental alleviations too. So, you know, a lot of times when people have cluttered houses and the energy is really unkept, we also see problems with, you know, entity problems. And people have sometimes a hard time realizing that. So I say, if your house is cluttered, start there, clean it up. Next thing, clean up your body. Clean the outside of your body, you know? Wash yourself up, become presentable. You, you can see even on um, social media, sometimes you'll see experiments where you'll see these really depressed, downtrodden, homeless people, and all they need is a bath and a haircut to, you know, bring their sense of self-worth up. Even when we see cases of clinical depression, a lot of times one of the symptoms is a um, negligence of self-grooming or self-cleanliness. So just becoming cleanly on the outside body can be a real invigorating, pranic-rich environment. But it goes beyond the outer body. You know, some people are more interested in, oh, you know, I, I look good and I present myself good. But what does the inner body look like? What do the datus and shottas look like? You know, how are the tissues maintained? Are they toxic on the inside? Are they having psychosomatic brain disorders or psychological problems arising from the uncleanliness within inside their body? So cleanliness to me doesn't always just mean, you know, put your things away or eat purely. It means that the insides are functioning well. You know, sometimes I'll make the analogy of if you eat the wrong foods for your constitutional makeup and you are constipated, that's kind of a, a clutter, many times the thinking is also constipated. 
or if you're eating things that are not congruent with proper bowel movements and you're constantly having diarrhea, is that causing diarrhea or some form of diarrhea of the mind? And these are important things for us to look at. You know, our internal body functions matter. Are we completely inactive and sluggish? When we look at Ayurveda, we understand that if we're really inactive or we're eating too much heavy guru foods like meats and cheeses and breads, sweets, that we become heavy, we become slow. That's not necessarily cleanly on the inside because then we'll see a direct correlation into the mind causing tamas and fogginess and slowness of the mind. How are we going to meditate and find self-actualization when we feel like a heavy sloth? We might look hot and look good and talk good, but the inside is not clean and pure. It's not flowing well. We want the body to be flowing well. We want the tissues to be flowing well. That way the mind can flow well. You know, even something so simple in Saucha is eating cleanly in order to follow the paths of the seasons. So, you know, that goes a little bit off topic, but the cleanliness is very important. Cleanliness of our mind, not only from the body, but cleanliness of our mind as far as psychology. What are we feeding our mind? What are we processing through our mind? Are we still processing trauma? That's clutter. We need to process that out. We need to dump it to crump it and get it out. We need to speak about it. We need to tell the truth. We need to find a counselor. We need to get a confidant. We need to journal it, breathe it out, whatever it is that has to be done. You need to take the trash out. Or some people, a lot of times their mind cleanliness is a problem when they're sitting all day watching social media or the news, just sucking in all the negativity and all the control mechanisms. And at the end of the day, they wonder why they feel like garbage. They wonder why their blood pressure is up. They wonder why their heart rate is abnormal. They wonder why they're stressed out. It's because they're not digesting what they're taking into their mind. And that's really an important concept. In my opinion, fits in with sancha, cleanliness. Clean up your environment. Clean up your body. Clean up your act. Clean up your eating. Clean up your thinking. Clean up what you're ingesting, you know? Are we ingesting tons of clutter into our home? Are we ingesting tons of clutter into our body? Ingesting tons of clutter into our minds? We gotta clean that out. No, it makes total sense and it just comes back to what we have been coming to time and time again that these things are just meant to uh, sort of steer you towards a yogic lifestyle, the limbs of yoga. And um, cleanliness is such an important thing, just as far as you're saying, as it represents an internal cleanliness or that our, it represents um, a respect for the relationship between our inner and outer world and how those two things interplay and affect one another and they can be so uh, they can be really revealing about one another or you can look at someone's environment and tell a lot about their inner world um so yeah and i also say with cleanliness i'll just make one last comment there 
is if you are attempting to manifest the maximum amount of your divinity through your life, self-actualization, soul realization, God realization, etc. If everything is dirty, thinking, body, tissues, mind, how are we going to reflect that out? You know, if we make that analogy that we're like stained glass windows and it's the light from within that radiates the beauty of the stained glass, what if it's just covered with slop on the inside and the beauty doesn't come through? It's like putting blackout curtains on or it comes through abnormally as well. Yeah, if we're trying to use yoga as a sort of tool to turn our body and our mind into a temple for the divine or for the godly, it uh, makes some sense to sweep the floor before you invite over, so to speak, or to get things cleaned up and have all of your things in order so that you're not fighting against yourself again. Um, and as you were saying yesterday, when we came to this subject, uh, try to picture a, a Buddhist temple that's disorderly. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't click in your head because it would never be because it's, they say cleanliness is godliness. And I guess that is sort of what they're getting at is that, if you are organized inside and you've built your temple in the inner that will reflect in your outer world in every way. In an ideal world. And I always tell people, you don't have to be perfect all at once. Just keep working on it. Do a little mm -hmm. bit more each day, bit by bit. And that is important to remember too that all of this is going to be an ongoing process for everybody and that there isn't so to speak uh an end goal in yoga although there sort of is <laughs> but uh in that union or yoga is the end goal but that even for the most enlightened master there's still something to be learned or there's still something to be applied so there's no no point at which um i guess i'm just trying to say that it's a it's a process of uh, unraveling the self throughout life and and learning to be able to take a step back and to look at yourself from an objective perspective and to be able to uh, use that greater perspective to encourage transformation and self-actualization and union or yoking with the divine. Absolutely. Um, okay, so where were we here? The, uh, the second niyama, Santosha, encompasses the concept neighbor's dog is barking my dogs will be next <laughs> mine were whining at the other side of the dog gate at the bottom of the stairs but i think they've fallen asleep at this point i don't ever lock them out of the room but they would be fighting for your attention right now um 
So the second niyama, santosha, encompasses the concept of contentment and striving to be satisfied with life right now, while striving to improve. Contentment brings peace and stabilization of vitiations. Uh, so, did you have anything that you wanted to say about uh, that concept of being content or being happy with what you have? I think santosha is such an important concept when I have, let's say, a friend or a student who's really in a, a pinch or a bind and they're like, well, I need this, I need that, this, I need that, I need this, I need that. I'll say, okay, well, I can clearly see that you're having some mental vitiations over this. And it's not something that can be fixed right now. Like, here you go, here's a pen, now you're content. Or here's an apple, now you're happy. Sometimes what we're striving for and what we want is long-term. You know, well, I'm not going to be happy until two years from now when I blah, 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 fill in the blank of X, Y, Z. And I'll tell people, what are you actually grateful for? Make a list of 20 things that you absolutely would not want to lose today. Have you given gratitude? Are you content for the things that you have at this moment? Would you like to lose your home right now? Would you like to lose all the food in your fridge right now? Would you like to lose your car right now? Have you tried expressing contentment for the things that you have right now? Instead of just give me, give me, give me what is not attainable right now. Because that creates this whole, you know, energetic dissatisfaction all the time. You know, and when I interact with a person, if they're constantly dissatisfied, they're not very hmm, inspiring to be around. You know, because you go, oh, hey, how are you today? And they're like, well, and then blah, 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 blah. You know, they have a ton of things that they're unhappy about or discontented about. Whereas if you find that contentment inside, you can still have dreams for wanting more. But you're not that sucking vortex of discontent. When we are discontented, we tend to also be energetically vampiric to other people. You know, we drain other people that we're around. But really what we're striving for is to find that daily contentment, that thank you. Thank you for my food. Thank you for my clothes. Thank you for the roof over my head. Thank you for the things I have. Thank you for my life and then proceed forward rather than each day waking up and not being at peace with how things are. Because also when we're in that state of discontentment, there's always ripples and waves and mental vitiations of negativity. And how are we going to sit and do meditation and find that true stillness and peace, that yoking, that bliss, that ananda, if we're constantly just griping. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was once told a real beautiful analogy from Kadambrima in India. She said, you know, Lakshmi, right? 
So a lot of people know Lakshmi, she's the you know, manifestation of wealth and abundance and prosperity. Well, if we don't honor Lakshmi, even if we don't know her name or anything like that, but if we don't honor that Lakshmi, that prosperity, that abundance, then what do we get? We get her opposite sister, a Lakshmi. Because you could be as rich as you want to be and still be unhappy, still be discontent. Where has the bliss gone? Down the drain because of the discontentment. Mm -hmm. And that is such a huge thing I found on my spiritual path is uh, just finding gratitude for the moment and just finding peace in day-to-day -day life and finding joy in the mundane the yeah. and just accepting the things that you can't control and and taking power over the things that you can and that it's important to Uh, it's just absolutely important to appreciate all of the blessings that we have in the world and to, you know, it's, it sounds cliche, you hear all those things like count your blessings and have an attitude of gratitude and all this, but it's incredibly uh, meaningful and important because if you wake up in the morning and you're just every day you're setting off with this sort of negative woe is me mentality and you're always just focusing on the things that you don't have it doesn't matter what you have or how many things you obtain it's never going to bring you to that place of appreciation for just a, a walk down the street in the sunny air and the little things uh, that are just, I guess they're in the modern day, so many people are uh, have become obsessed with uh, this sort of American dream mentality where it's like, I need the, the house and the car and the job and all of these things before I'm ever going to have contentment. But when you set out on with that mentality, you're just setting yourself up for failure from the get-go. Yeah. Well, and I also tell people, if you're not going to be content until X, Y, Z have been fulfilled, what if you die tomorrow? Oh, then you die discontented. Why not find some contentment now? Mm. You know, if you're waiting for this five-year goal, only then will I really feel like I'm, I'm content. Well, what if you drop dead in an hour? Mm -hmm. um, and that's just it, is that life is uh, sweet and sometimes life is short and it, uh, I've found that um, I've come to a place in life where I've looked back and said, wow, I, uh, or I guess everyone who won at some point uh, in life probably looks back on life and feels like they didn't spend their time and their resources well, or like they didn't uh, take advantage of 
opportunities to the best uh, in the best way that they could have or uh, but at the same time, I really try to live without regret because they're, I guess, of the butterfly effect or whatever you want to call it, that you never know like what tiny little difference uh, or tiny little thing could have happened differently that would totally alter the course of your reality. And uh, again, it comes down to looking for truth and and acknowledging where you are in life and what's brought you there and that some aspects of the things that bring us to where we are today are positive and some are negative and you can sort of uh, look at your current position with judgment or with fear I guess or you can look at yourself with love and and uh, stop uh, uh, for myself it uh, yoga really taught me to uh, stop expecting so much out of myself and out of a day and to just be content with uh, what I do have and with the moment right like the when we look at the Maslow's hierarchy of needs and uh, you know the most important things that we need in life like uh, oxygen and food and shelter and all of these things we all have taken care of and we're sort of focused on these higher needs or things that we don't need that we convince ourselves that we need that we truly just want and those are the things that we convince ourselves are important but when we take a step back, do we really need that to be happy or can we be happy in the moment despite the things that we desire? And, and that's when, you, you know, our desires can become an enemy in that way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What we become attached to. Can they be rob suffering. us from experiencing the joy of the moment by contrasting it to a potentially better moment that doesn't exist. Absolutely. Um, okay, I will uh, move on here to the next of the Niyamas, if my device will allow me. So the third niyama is tapas. Tapas can be understood as discipline or fiery determination. Discipline can extend towards physical fitness, meditation, and confronting unhealthy urges. All spiritual pathways require discipline and passion to reach great achievements. Um, so we've already tapas. on discipline, but what would you like to say about that? Yeah, tapas is so important also that people understand that it's not just discipline. It's also that, that passion, like passionate about. And obviously, if we have not taken a look at some of our previous yamas and niyamas, our passions could be a little bit screwy and taking us off of our dharmic pathway, our life purpose here. But, you know, people will say, well, you know, I have a really hard time meditating. How am I ever going to hope to reach what they call samadhi? I'll say, well, it takes 
practice. It takes discipline. You're going to have to sit there and struggle through whatever it is that is keeping you from obtaining that goal. Or if you, you know, want to have a particular type of physique, it's going to take discipline. You're going to have to get up in the morning and say, okay, what was I going to do again? 50 push-ups, 50 sit-ups, 50 bench presses, 50 pound weight, check, 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 check. I did it. Same thing on, on our spiritual path. It takes discipline. Right now, my guru ma has me doing three hours of meditation a day. That takes discipline. I have to sit down, organize my time and say, okay, let's see. What's my schedule like? How am I going to fit all of this in? If you want that spiritual or self-actualization, it requires the discipline of going through all the yamas, going through the niyamas, taking care of the physical body, working with the breath, working with all of these different elements. It's not just, you know, a lot of people, I'll tell them, it's not about wearing the fancy yoga pants and wearing the fancy yoga beads. It's not about buying the fancy yoga things because when all of that is taken away, what do you have left? The work you've put in, the inner work you've put in. The inner work you put in is what you get to take beyond this lifetime. Not the things that you bought, the cute things that, you know, you took to class or put on your altar, but the work you put in. And it helps if we have that passion about it. Like, oh my gosh, you know, I want to do my spiritual practices. I want to get there. I want to go there. I want to do that rather than, oh, I'm going to meditate now. So we have to have the discipline. But I always say, try to have the discipline come in a form of raw passion. You know, like, I just want this. And then we really move much quicker on our spiritual pathway rather than, oh, I have to go do my yogasana now. I got to go do 10 minutes of pranayama. You know, that's nothing. And if it's hard, we'll keep practicing, keep practicing. If you go to the gym and you want to lift 100 pounds, but you can only lift 80, don't cry about it. Lift the 80 10 more times. And then maybe by next week, next month, next year, you might be able to lift 100 pounds. And I think that the problem with discipline is we live in a society of instant gratification. You know, I bought it. There it is. Yoga in a package. Ta-da! Spirituality in a package. Ta-da! It looks right. It sounds right. I can take a Snapchat, you know, Snapchat photo and post it. Look at me. I've got my spirituality in a box. But when all the things are taken away, it's the work that's put in and the passion that's there that gets you to it. Mm -hmm. And um, it sort of brings to mind, again, something that we were talking about yesterday and that... Uh, the end goal of yoga being samadhi or union or yoking or this uh, soul integration or integration of all facets of the self. And that um, if we're, if that is our goal, like in the short term, that the eight pillars of yoga are setting uh are trying to set the yogi up so that they're living their life in such a way that their body and their mind and their actions are preparing them for union with the divine. 
And so that is experienced uh, in on a smaller scale or in the macrocosm uh, as the union of Shiva Shakti we were discussing, but in the I meant to say in the microcosm as Shiva and Shakti, but in the macrocosm or in the uh, bigger picture, this could be sort of seen as a, a reflection of uh, the greater dissolution of the soul into back into everything or breaking from the cycles of life and death and samsara. Um, So where I was going with that uh, was that basically um, the the path of yoga is is setting us up in one day to uh, create a sort of feedback loop where we're uh, creating a day to day life that encourages us to be more and more drawn towards uh self-fulfillment and self-actualization and union with the divine and so that it starts becoming easier but that those first steps on the path can feel really torturous depending where you're coming from uh or can feel it can feel like you like you it could take 10 lifetimes to strip all of the those other aspects away from the self and experience just the pure bliss of existence and so and some people times yeah and so everyone is coming to yoga from a different place but with a, a sort of the same goal in mind of uh using this universal formula that you can take and apply to any life and just use it to enhance said life. Um, and so was there anything else that you wanted to uh, say on that concept before we move on um, to Swadhyaya? Yeah, let's move on to Swadhyaya, such an important concept. Okay, so um, Swadhyaya is the fourth niyama of self-study and, uh, and study of scriptures. Through study, self-evaluation, and introspection, one forges self-mastery. There's a, a something uh, went awry there. Through study, self-evaluation, and introspection, one forges self-mastery can be attained. There's a little typo there, but uh, we get the point. Uh, so uh, yes. do you want to expand on that there, or maybe just clarify on what uh, was intended to be said there? Self-mastery is so important. And, you know, when we look at the concept of Swadhyaya, I, I agree, sure. Read your scriptures, whatever fits within your lineage or your even religious model. But really, at the end of the day, what do we do with it? You know, some people just collect books and they can recite all these different things, but have they applied it to themselves? You know, we've got all the philosophies to help us live a self-actualized life, but we don't get it until we apply it to ourselves. It's like, I, I, my mom used to joke around and say that her, my godmother would tease and say, okay, what, you know, she'd call her up and say, what are you doing right now? 
And she'd say, I'm watching working out on TV. You know, it's not just enough for us to read about spirituality. It's not just enough to watch and listen about spirituality. You have to do it. And Swadhyaya brings in that concept of really taking the principles that we've studied and studying ourselves. Do I have satya? Am I practicing ahimsa? Am I physically in order? Am I cleanly in thought, body, life? Do I have some serious things that need to be cleared up? Do I need to go to therapy? Do I need to see a psychiatrist? Do I need to speak my truth or have my truth heard? You know, Swadhyaya can also just come in the form of things like journaling. But when we study ourselves, we get to know ourselves. You know, that's a very important concept, know thyself. Because if you don't, everything else sprouts out in a awry way, you know? If you don't know that you're a Brillo patch and you think you're a rose bush, you're still going to get a Brillo patch. If you think you're a dandelion, but you're trying to be an oak tree, you're never going to reach the beautiful manifestation of your dandelion because you're trying to be an oak tree. And along the same thing, we need to know what kind of nutrition does that dandelion need? What kind of lighting does it need? What kind of environment does it need? What type of things are, what type of artha resources are required to reach the dharmic fulfillment of being the most beautiful dandelion? You have to know yourself. If you've got weeds next to you that are draining your nutrients, do the weeding. If there's something else that needs to be done in the process because there's toxins in the system, mental toxins, physical toxins, karmic entanglements, get up in there. And it can be a messy job, self-study. Swadhyaya can be those things that everybody wants to lock in the closet, brush under the rug, avoid, you know, just do the ostrich act on. And I tell them, until you're willing to study yourself and face Whatever it is that you need to face, learn whatever it is you need to learn, you're going to keep getting the same results. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and over, expecting different results. So self-study can be difficult because change can cause fear and anxiety in people. Oh, I'm afraid to change. I'm afraid to change how I act or interact. Well, Sometimes I just say, suck it up, get it done, get her done. <laughs> <laughs> or just stay where you are. If you're happy where you are, stay put. But obviously you aren't, or the conversation wouldn't have been had. Right. That's just it. And um, as we had discussed before, we were saying that yoga isn't necessarily for everybody or that uh, it is a... Uh, a tool for uh, deep personal transformation and for a lot of people that is the scariest thing they can think of to look within and face their deepest fears and try to 
understand and conquer them and to try to integrate these aspects of themselves or do away with aspects of themselves that aren't benefiting them anymore or that never were or these uh, things that need to be uh, brought uh, into light or understood as part of our being whether they're benefiting us or not and um, yoga really for me allowed me to look within myself and to sort of decide what aspects of myself were serving me and what aspects were not and they allow you to sort of separate from things that you previously had thought of as integral to your being almost or aspects of the self that feel like you've lost control over them or they become habitual or become just ingrained in your way of living or your way of being and yoga can allow people to take control of those things again and to start shaping your life into a better version of, of or to allow you to start shaping your life towards a, a closer version to what you see as the ideal but for some so many people they can have this idea in their head of their ideal self, but it can just feel so far away from where they are in the current moment that it's intimidating to make that first step on a path of transformation. Yeah, and it takes us all the way back to Santosha, having that contentment. Be happy where you are right now. It's all right. You know, the self-study might take, oh, what, a day? No, <laughs> a week? Probably not a month, a year, a decade, a lifetime, a couple lifetimes even. So just stay on it with that, that passion of really wanting to be the best version of yourself. It takes time. And really I find does. that even with postures that um, sometimes I will find that pushing too hard to, uh, to gain more flexibility or to, uh, to force change in my body where as I can benefit more in the moment just from relaxing and breathing and being content with where I'm at in the posture rather than constantly wishing I had those couple extra inches of flexibility or motion. Yeah. And, you know, Swadhyaya self-study also goes even into the asanas. I'll tell students, okay, so you want to get into some fancy pose. You want to do a scorpion pose. Oh, and you tell me you used to be able to do it 20 years ago. Well, study why you are not able to do it now. What happened? Why is your body no longer the way it was originally intended to be? Flexible, pliable. Oh, because you broke your pelvis? Well, like, let's take that into consideration. Oh, because you do a desk job and you're inactive? Oh, let's take that into consideration. Well, because your diet is dry and cold and the vata in your body is too elevated and causing tissue emaciation, dryness and depletion and atrophy. Well, let's study that. Let's study the physical body and see what is it Well, you're not able to come into that pose because you had an emotional trauma that you're holding somewhere in your body and you're clenching to that portion of your body. Study that. Take a look at that. Does it actually hurt to try to come into the pose? 
Maybe it's just the muscle. Maybe it's your mind. Maybe it's nutritional. Maybe it's fill in the blank. So, you know, even Swadhyaya self-study comes into the asanas or it even starts moving into the other limbs of breathing. Why are you not able to do the breathing? What is it that's causing this emotional disruption when you're trying to do the breathing? Where'd that come from? When did that start? What pattern created that? Yeah, really important. So we have uh, one uh, Niyama left and then um, we'll be moving on to the other uh, limbs of yoga. But um, first, so Ishwara Pranidhana, um, the fifth uh, observance, uh, incorporates making each action an offering to divinity, developing trust and alignment with the universe. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say about that? Oh, yeah. You know, Ishvara Pranadana is often defined as surrender. And I used to joke around and say, I'm the worst at that. <laughs> I'm not one to surrender, <laughs> not easily or gracefully. And I would say to myself, well, what's this surrender mean? Like, do I have to submit? Because I'm not going to submit. And then I started realizing it's surrendering to the now. There's a lot of different layers to it. Surrendering and saying like this, okay, this is what we've got going on right now. It doesn't mean give up, like I surrender. It means see things for what it is right now. All right, this is how it is. It is what it is. Now, what do I make with this lemon? What do I make with this spilt milk on the floor? What do I do about it? But when we start taking the concept of surrender, to deeper layers, we also understand that when we come into farther levels of yoking, when we are accessing or radiating out more of our soul and less of our monkey mind and mental conditioning, societal conditioning, school conditioning, eventually we kind of have to start considering that what we've been told we should do, what we have thought was the path to take may not be our soul's pathway. And your soul's pathway may rub people wrong. You may have to relinquish certain relationships. You may have to relinquish certain societal standings or positions in society to reach your soul's mission. And that takes surrender. You know, I, I recently received a spiritual name through my Guru Ma. And in many ways, it's a surrender to that new vibrational existence of soul actualization. And I can't just sit here and say, well, this is my identity. This is who I am. This is what I'm going to cling to. Sometimes you really have to take that leap of faith and surrender into the flow of divinity. And it might not be what you expect because it's not what you were told. It's not the 
episode of Little House on the Prairie that you were hoping for. It might not be the you know sitcom model of what you were thinking was going to happen that you attached your mind to once upon a time. You may have to relinquish that and surrender to a whole new outlet of the river and just say, all right, have I studied myself well enough? Is this the right path? Am I being truthful with myself? Am I being cleanly in my actions, thoughts, and mind? Am I on the right path? And if you are, one of the best things you can do is surrender to it. But it's kind of scary sometimes. You know, spiritual life can look really off the wall to some people. Really off the wall. People are like, what's going on with this person? Their opinion's not my business. Doesn't matter. Great. Yeah. Um, there, you ended the section on the uh, Niyamas with a quote. And I'll read it here. Uh, anyone calling out for God from any land, in any language, and in any age, remember their cries reach this heart like the waves of the ocean crashing onto the shore and that is a quote from sri ananda mayima that's a really important concept that i often think about and a friend sent it to me recently and reminded me of it that what's our soul's purpose here are we yoking? Are we crying out to reach God? And when we do, those cries are heard. And they, it's like a crashing union at that time. And we also want to be prepared for that moment when our cries are heard. We want to be truthful about who we are. We want to really have studied ourselves and say, yes. This is what my soul is yearning for in this lifetime. This is my life mission. This is my dharma. These are my karmas. This is what I'm going to do. Even if it doesn't quite look right to other people. And that can be a really empowering place to come to for anyone where you come to a point of realizing that your own dharma, despite what it may look like to others or despite how other people may perceive it, uh, is, it, it is important for you to embrace your own personal dharma or swadharma. And, uh, and and not everyone is going to understand that, and that's okay. And particularly for people on a spiritual path or uh, in the Western world, particularly, uh, there can be a lot of sort of judgment and a lot of um, things that are assumed or a lot of stigma about someone on a spiritual path that they're maybe lazy or that they are have a couple screws loose or something almost that they don't that they aren't 
as oriented in the material world and the same sort of uh, aspirations that your typical modern day Western person holds dear. And or that you've gone mad. Pardon me? Or that you've gone mad. Yeah, precisely. Or, uh, or that that would be a bad thing if it were true. Um, no, but uh, absolutely. I think that um, we've covered a lot of ground just between the yamas and the yamas. We're approaching almost the two hour mark. Um, so perhaps this would be a good time to um, just take a minute and I will uh, stop the recording just to make sure that we don't lose an incredible amount of time here. Um, just to make sure that the video renders properly and then I can uh, slice the two of them together in a little bit. Okay, so right. we were just about to move on to the uh, third limb of yoga being asana or postures. And uh, I will just uh, read what Kalavati had to say. Asanas are incorporated in the third limb of yoga. Asanas are poses, movements, and physical exercises that bring physical and mental ease. Many yoga lineages have very structured physical postures that are linked with breath and mental control. However, movements can arise more spontaneously and include dance and other forms of exercise. This branch of yoga facilitates body confidence, physical discipline, coordination, flexibility, and strength. In addition, asanas purify body tissues, channel, channels, and promote body ease. Asanas should be advised by a competent teacher to avoid destabilization of prana. Overly complicated poses can create abnormal energetic, mental, and physical disturbances. Untimely yoga asanas can create an integration between body, breath, oh, pardon me, ultimately, yoga asanas create an integration between body, breath, mind, and soul for successful meditation and yoking. It is much more difficult to concentrate and sit in meditation when the body is weak, toxic, or rebelling. And then uh, you give a quote that I guess I'll just read right now because uh, you most likely better than I do know the translation. Uh, Sritha Sukham Asanam, and that is from the uh, Patanjali Yoga Sutra. Um, and it's funny because I met with uh, a man I know named Mike Monroe who quoted that to me just the other day right before you submitted the article. And I forget what context it came up in, but uh, we were talking just about, uh, about asana. And he stated that quote, and I actually forget the translation. So I'm going to need your help uh, in jogging my memory. Yeah, so when we say to take upon a yogasana, a physical asana, in the state of sthiram sukham asanam. This is what 
Patanjali said about how each of our poses should be. So stira or stiram. Stira in Sanskrit means steady. Or some people might say firm, but really it should be steady. Sukham, we have sukha and we have dukkha. Dukkha is suffering or pain. Sukha is ease or niceness. And so when we're looking at an asana, we want to make sure that it is stiram sukham. We want to hold the pose with steady grace. So if we're not able to come into the pose, you know, of course, there's going to be a little bit of adjustment, a little bit of a struggle here and there. We don't want to just do only easy poses. But the goal is to find that posture, that hold, that activity or that flow that creates a sense of sukham and that you can hold in a very steady way, not necessarily hold rigidly, it depends on what kind of asana is being practiced. You know, so in asana, if we're looking just at traditional type hatha yoga, we have, you know, individual poses or we have vinyasa type flow series like surya namaskar, sun salutations, or chanda namaskars, moon salutations, or we have all sorts of different, you know, Iyengar based practices. But really, when I look also at that statement of stiram sukham asanam, we should be doing physical activity, which brings about steadiness, not only in our body, but steadiness in our breath, steadiness in our mind, to bring about sukha, enjoyment. We should be enjoying what we do for physical activity. You know, some people will say like, oh, okay, I'm going to go do my yoga. Like, wow, you don't sound very enthusiastic about it. It doesn't sound like it's going to yield you much shukra or sukha rather than dukkha, suffering. So, you know, the big thing with asana, a lot of people come to the zone of yoga and they, they really believe that that's the bulk of what yoga is. And I'll say, no, what you're doing asana for First of all, asana can be yoga poses, yoga flow series, but asana just means a, a pose. It could be going for a walk. It could be lifting weights. It could be doing martial arts. It could be running. It's keeping the body in check so that you can go into meditation also stiram sukham steady with ease or steady with grace. So, you know, a lot of people will say like, well, I have to master all of these complicated poses, etc." I'll say, no, you don't. You don't need to master all those complicated poses to be a good yogi. You need to master your body. That's what you need to master. You need to go back to Swadhyaya and study yourself, study your physical body also and determine Am I in balance? You know, am I 100 pounds overweight? Am I 30 pounds underweight? How do I redistribute my datus, my seven layers of tissues to create an 
optimal environment, an optimal temple, basically, or an optimal transmission station to transmit my soul's purpose most appropriately. And a lot of times students will just say, well, I, I really want to master these really complex physical poses. And I'll say, okay, you know, that's fine if that's what you want to do. However, we want to remember that it's a mastery of the physical body combined with mastery of the breath and mastery of the mind. It's not just about the pose. And there's way too much emphasis placed on just the poses. And, you know, that you have to look a certain way or you have to be super bendy and flexible like a pretzel or a rubber band. Otherwise, you're definitely not a good yogi. Oh, my goodness. You know, you can't do this pose, then you're not good at yoga. And I think that's where we are losing a lot of people in gaining the benefits of yoga because they see these magazine cover illustrated complicated poses and they're like this oh yeah i can't do yoga right and you know and i can understand that and i would be a very bad yogi because i have scoliosis and i have diabetes and mental issues also that uh, in the past more so than now have hindered me in yoga and and I think it is a thing that can be intimidating for a lot of people uh, who have never done yoga before in any capacity uh, that they look at um, the things that are posted to social media and they see these pretzely people and that is what becomes associated with it and it's really uh, unfortunate thing that I feel a lot of people are turned away from yoga for that reason that it automatically in their mind becomes this overwhelming thing like I can't do that I can't bend my legs up behind my head and do all of these wacky looking things really that is totally not what it should be about for most people and um, I didn't mean to interrupt, but, uh, go ahead and carry on. Yeah. You know, I tell people it's about finding a physical ease, a physical strength, because, you know, some aspects of yoga does require some stamina, at least to be able to sit upright and to hold meditation long enough. And if the body is toxic, not exercised, weakened, some aspects of yoga might not be attainable. But I tell patients, even at the hospital, you could be a quadriplegic in a wheelchair and still do yoga. Mm -hmm. You could be paralyzed from the neck down and still do yoga. And they're like, what? How is that possible? I can't do the poses. And I'll say, well, well we can talk in a little while. You can point. still use your mind, still concentrate. And that's the, the yogi. The that's the self-actual. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. They have sense organs. Yeah, they can still do yoga. And, a and they'll say, to work with. 
-hmm. Yeah, and I really place heavy emphasis with particularly students that I'm teaching not to body shame when it comes to yoga, that yoga can be for all body types, shapes, and sizes because it's only a little bit about the body. The asanas are only another way to create mastery of oneself. You know, how can we say we have become self-actualized and a master of ourselves if we can't master our own body? How can we become a master of ourselves if we haven't mastered our own breath, our mind, our ability to concentrate, you know? And then again, people over and over and over are led away from yoga. Well, I have a back problem. I have a this problem. I have a that problem. I'll say so. I have a couple bad discs. I've broken my arm. I've broken my hand. I've dislocated my shoulder. I've had a meniscal problem. Big deal. You can still do asana. You can still stretch and get rid of the dis-ease in your body. You can still get a little bit stronger than you were yesterday. And it's not necessarily about this profound strength either. You know, it's about mastering your own body. And I firmly challenge people to say also, can you not be a good yogi if you're quadriplegic? Can that person not be self-actualized? Can that person not yoke? And they're like this, hmm, good point. But able to master the body is one of the steps that makes self-actualization easier or quicker. Well, maybe not quicker, but it's a good way to not get stuck in the asana section, you know? I think that too many people, they, they get stuck there in the asana. And yeah, we need to open up the body from our previous trauma. We need to open up the clutching that we do. You know, you have a, an emotional trauma, let's say when you're eight years old, and then we, we, in, we close in. Oh, you know, we start to slouch and hold the body awkwardly. We're holding on to physical pain. And, you know, like when we do yin yoga, they're long held poses. There's lots of crying in yin yoga because people are letting go of that deep fascia holding and old traumas come up and old emotions sometimes come up. And I'll say, yeah, like get that out of your system. Why are you, why are you holding in that area of your body? Like what emotional or physical thing happened to create that tightness, that holding? you weren't tight like that when you were three that's for sure you weren't tight like that when you were four i mean unless you were born that way and that's okay too there's more of an understanding that we're just bringing our body into we want to be in a physical steady ease because then how would i do a steady steady ease meditation if i can't even find that within my physical body right and that brings to mind for me the idea that we were talking about earlier with uh himsa or violence towards the self in the form of judgment right in that uh when we uh 
I totally lost what I was getting at there <laughs> exactly with the uh, with the violence towards the self and judgment. But w what exactly was it that you were talking about? Uh, what? Uh, where were we at right before I interjected there? I did have a, yeah. a point. I think what you might have been moving towards is that when we are loving to ourselves, we meet ourselves where we're at and we're not hateful and thought to ourselves like, oh, I can't do that. I'm not capable of doing that. That that is a form of himsa, violence towards ourselves and downgrading ourselves. And anybody can do yoga. Anybody. Doesn't matter what color, shape, size, age, injuries, stiffness, wheelchair, doesn't matter. The patients at the hospital, they'll say, well, you know, I'm wheelchair bound or my grandma had a stroke. She's, she's in a bed at home. I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, let me send you a link. She can do Poe and Muktasana series one. They're like, oh, really? I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. If she can't do it with her knees, help her out with it. Give her some confidence. Give her some strength. Mm -hmm. You know, move the promise too. That's what's also very important. When we are stagnant and we're not using our bodies appropriately, we also have a improper a potential of improper distribution and flow of the values through our body the life prana and when we are holding the body abnormally in a state of dukkha not sukha then vata becomes trapped and then we start getting an abnormal flow of vayu and so our life prana starts fading and also the physical activity is important because then we get our agni going. Not only our digestive agni, we start getting our tissue agni going and we start enlivening the conscious agni as well, and the mind channel agni. Right. And, and you've then... Uh, I was going to say you've helped uh, remind me of what I was uh, trying to come to earlier with the, uh, the nonviolence thing. When you were saying that we hold trauma in the body and that um, we continue to do that throughout our, uh, throughout our life uh, after the trauma is over. And um, that's a, a thing that you see time and time again in the mysteries or in spirituality is that it's important to maintain this uh, childlike state of learning because a child, when they fail, when they're young, they don't beat themselves up over it. And as we get older, for some reason, uh, people remember all of their past failures and it sort of accumulates over time. And as we get older, we, we beat ourselves up over those times that we fall. But when you're a child, you don't do that. You just get up and you just try again. And so you see that time and time again in different spiritual paths uh, that it's important to maintain that childlike state of learning uh, in on the spiritual path. And I think that that is sort of important to remember that uh, everyone has struggles and everyone has bumps in the road and everyone has obstacles and things that they're going to have to overcome and that so many people get hung up in that initial hesitation to start practicing yoga or to start incorporating these things into their life and 
as you were saying, people will find all sorts of excuses like, oh, I have, I only have one leg or whatever it is. And you could argue that that's all the more reason to want to incorporate these things into your life and to start taking control over what you do have in your life or what you do have rather than thinking about, well, I don't have this or I don't have that, or I don't have the perfect body and I don't have the perfect mind. We'll start taking control over what you do have. One of my most fulfilling yoga classes I used to teach was at a convalescent home just below the hospital that I worked at for almost 30 years. And the convalescent home, I would go over there on Wednesdays and they would fill the whole recreation room with all of the different people who wanted to attend yoga. And sometimes there'd be up to 30 people in there. I was like, oh, wow, what a great yoga class. And they were on jerry chairs, which are kind of like stretchers that sit up. They were in wheelchairs. They came in in walkers. They had to be assisted in. A lot of them didn't have, you know, they had missing legs or maybe had a stroke and one side didn't work at all. And I was like this. (laughs) let's do yoga this is fantastic and we would start by just contemplating maybe a concept of a yama of contentment or of gratitude we would start off with looking at different aspects of niyamas you know are we honoring and loving ourselves are we being violent towards ourselves in thought or action and then we would move into asana and i would just say just move what you have you know if it doesn't move great, that's okay. Just move it anyways. Just stretch. Get the, get the prana moving through your body. It's a beautiful feeling to be able to do more today than you could yesterday. Yes? And they would say, okay, they would start moving. We would take like bubbles, you know, bubble blowers and dip them. And they'd blow into the bubble blowers. And I was like this, now this is great. But they started feeling more alive. Their prana was moving. And then I would say, now let's concentrate on something. And now let's go into meditation and journey in towards our soul and bring that love out. It was one of the most beautiful yoga classes I ever taught. And trust me, they could not do fancy asanas at all. Most of them couldn't get out of their wheelchairs or their jerry chairs. I was like this, yeah, that's fine. Stay right there. You only have one leg and half an arm. Eh, That's all right move it around. Right. But as far as giving those people something that they can take home and use in their day-to-day life to give themselves a little more power over their situation, that is an incredibly uh, great thing that you can do for people. And there's so many people that could uh, benefit from yoga that, uh, And it is great that there is access to it, even if it is uh, simply just in the physical sort of form that it's manifested in in the modern day as a sort of fitness movement or however you want to phrase it. But, um, you know, there's a lot of people that could benefit solely from moving their body a little more and learning to breathe a little deeper or what have you, uh, and so are we, uh, 
getting stuck on Asana ourselves here? Should we, uh, do you have anything else that you want to say uh, in regards to that? Or should we maybe move on to Pranayama? I think the point's been made. Let's move on to Pranayama. Definitely. So uh, I'll just go back to the article and I'll uh, recap on what you had to say on the fourth limb of yoga being pranayama, uh, where breath control techniques are practiced. These breath control methods have numerous benefits that enhance pranic life force. Pranayama calms and balances the mind, stabilizes emotions, hormones, and neurotransmitters. Properly chosen breath techniques also strengthen the cardiovascular and pulmonary systems. Pranayama techniques can enhance digestion, metabolism, and reduce pain perception. These methods should be supervised and taught by a competent teacher, or they can cause detrimental physiological side effects and lead the practitioner further away from the goal of samadhi. And uh, you also include a quote here from the Hatha Yoga Pratipika. When the breath wanders, the mind also is unsteady. But when the breath is calmed, the mind too will be still, and the yogi achieves long life. Therefore, one should learn to control the breath. So where would you like to uh, go from there, Kalavati? Yeah, pranayama is one of my favorite tools in the yoga toolbox, Absolutely. and often very underutilized. So coming from a medical background, I've done a lot of digging into the pathophysiological benefits of each or different groupings of pranayama. So, you know, when we say pranayama, some people will say it's, you know, breath control or breath manipulation. I like to say breath awareness. So depending on the breath technique that's done, you can increase body temperature, you can lower body temperature, you can move yourself into deeper states of concentration. But what's important to realize is, okay, each emotion has its own distinct breath pattern. So typically when people are sad, how do they breathe? <gasps> oh, you know, they're like Eeyore, right? Or if people are angry, typically what do you think of? You know, you think of like <clears throat> very specific breath type. And when people are anxious, how do they breathe? It's usually like, <laughs> there's very specific rhythms. I can look at a human individual and just observe their breath and ascertain a lot of information of what emotional status they're in. So the way we breathe sends a feedback to our body, brain, hormones, the whole nine yards to tell our bodies what is going on so for instance if i am always in a low grade chronic state of stress and i'm always breathing in a very specific low grade stress way kind of you know short and shallow breathing this is going to send additional signals to my body well something's going on with her she's in a fight or flight situation. Therefore, in response to that, 
I'm going to secrete epinephrine, norepinephrine. I'm going to shunt blood away from the digestive system and put it over in the musculoskeletal systems because she's either going to run or throw down. I'm not sure what's going on out there, but something's going on. So activate the sympathetic nervous system because something is clearly wrong. Her brain is sending signals through her breath system that something is wrong. So the whole body is constantly in this response. All it takes is to educate a person to be mindful of their breathing and to stop that breathing pattern, to yoke with their own breath awareness and go like this, oh, I'm doing it again. I'm doing short, shallow breathing again. Let me, let me like every hour just go and center my breath. It starts to shift your neurological system off of the, the sympathetic nervous system and drop you down into the parasympathetic nervous system, which then allows the blood flow to resume more normally through the gastrointestinal system, through the digestion. It allows then the blood pressure to come down or to normalize if it's been elevated. The heart rate normalizes itself. You stop secreting as much cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine. And then you start creating more happy neurochemicals rather than fear neurochemicals. And people will say, well, you know, I'm just always stressed out. I'm like this, but then you're going to have to learn how to deal with that stress. And you're going to need to send signals to your body that you are actually okay at this moment, unless you're about to run or throw down, quit breathing like it's the end of the world. And they're like, oh, okay. But then if we apply it to more of a yogic techniques and, you know, here we're doing the formal practice of yoga, right? We want to be able to have our body movements or our body awareness matched up and coupled with breath awareness. And then in the later stages, marry that with mind awareness. And then we're integrating all of our systems and are more capable of reaching that spiritual goal, which requires that concentration and dipping into meditation. Mm -hmm. So the breath is really important. I mean, just learning breath control in and of itself can be revolutionary for people. I have patients at the hospital uh, who I used to treat. They, you know, maybe they were on chronic pain meds and I would say, okay, hold on. Before you take those Norcos, or before you take anxiety medication, I would like you to do 10 minutes of a breath technique, you know, one that would bring them down into the parasympathetic nervous system. And they would say, oh, no, 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 I need my medication. I go, just humor me. Humor me for two weeks, okay? And do the breath technique before you take your meds. Almost unanimously, they would come back and report needing less either pain or anxiety medication. And I would say, now keep that up. You are mastering yourself. And what is the ultimate goal of yoga? Well, first of all, we want to reach the highest level of self-mastery as possible so that we can fully integrate with our soul rather than the screwy societal conditioning, misconceptions, veils, maya, 
egregores, outer influences, and to just come under the influence of our soul. It's very difficult to do if the breathing is messed up. Very difficult. Right. And uh, there's part of me that wants to stop on the subject of stress and the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system just because I have experienced chronic stress in the past and uh, you hear people say stress will kill you and all these things, but really uh, I had no idea until I experienced what that felt like in the body uh, because as you know, uh, my pancreas stopped producing insulin when I was 32, I'm now 38. And for the few years afterwards, I had a lot of uh, physical challenges of just learning to balance my diet and my just uh, way of living. And I, you know, I went from never needing to check the ingredients on a package in my life to needing to break out a calculator with everything that I wanted to eat and taking four daily injections and all of these things. So suddenly I found that I was under an intense amount of physical and mental strain. And I was seeing an endocrinologist and a diabetes specialist and a dietitian once every three months. And uh, the endocrinologist was telling me for over a year that a lot of my physical health problems were uh, manifestation of stress and I developed IBS like I was either constipated or had diarrhea on and off for a year and a half and having someone telling you to try to wish your problems away or to breathe your problems away when you over a few years uh slowly entered this way this way of thinking and this way of being where you become i've become eeyore right you know i was i wasn't breathing deeply and and you become separated from this way of feeling connected to your breath and connected to uh just a more holistic way of thinking and feeling in in your day-to-day -day life and um you know, so my dietitian was slowly uh, taking everything out of my diet and reintroducing it to see what it could be that could be irritating my digestion. And after we basically eliminated everything, she said, I'm starting to agree with the endocrinologist, it must be stress because there's nothing else that really could be irritating you on such a level. And I said, okay, well, I'm supposed to be a yogi. I know how to de-stress and it was approaching Christmas time and I had seven days off and I was going to visit my mother. And so I took an hour every morning to do my old yoga practice and an hour every evening. And I found that after three days, the symptoms of IBS had almost vanished after a year and a half. And I came to the realization that I was stressing myself to death. And you hear those words, but you, I had no way of putting it into perspective and so I feel like that experience really I'm still learning the lesson of it but it's been incredibly enlightening so to speak that uh that the the state of the mind can literally 
be reflected in the body in such a way that we can create an absolute hell for ourselves in the physical world. And I was fighting certain mental and physical uh, battles, but I was making it so much worse just by my outlook and by taking my power away from myself and not utilizing the tools that I knew that I have. And so, uh, yeah, it can, stress can really be uh, an interesting thing and the way that we use our breath and the way that we use our bodies in our day-to-day life, we can do that in a way that perpetuates healing and because to the mind it's one or the other like we're either chilling or there's something wrong and we and we can sort of uh our mind doesn't know the difference of whether we're stressing over something that is really not important versus uh something it's versus when we're in a fight or flight situation and so it will really kick into these uh stir producing stress hormones like you were saying like uh, epinephrine no epinephrine cortisol epinephrine is essentially adrenaline right and so i had taken myself yeah. to the point of adrenal fatigue and and that is, is intense, like to look at uh, that we can literally stress ourselves to the point that our body starts shutting down. And I think it's also important in that whole thing when we're looking at breath and stress, is it real stress or is it perceived stress? Right. I'll often, ask somebody and they'll say, well, I am so stressed out. And I'll say about what? You're just sitting here talking to me. Mm-hmm. Why are you stressed at this moment? Right at this exact moment, why are you stressed? You currently have nothing to be stressed about in this moment. And they're like, yeah, but I have this, 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 this. I go, you're not present. You're not even present in the current moment. You're stressed out about something that is going to be in two weeks, two months, two years. You're not even aware of your present, where you are. You're stressed. I'm looking at you. I'm physically looking at you. And you currently have nothing to stress about. How come you can't find ease in this moment? Right in this moment. Can't you find ease? And they're like, no, I'm so stressed out about this. I'll say, mm-hmm. you're totally doing that to yourself. And I'm a, I'm a little bit rough with some of my students. You know, I'm just like, sometimes I just say it as it is. I remember one time I was, this is, you know, slightly off subject, but it has to do with emotional healing and breath pattern and being present, being present with the body, being present with the breath. One time I was, uh, had had just a horrible moment. We'll get short and sweet to that point. And I was crying in a bathroom and this woman came into the bathroom and she said, oh my gosh, you know, are you okay? It was like the full sobbing, ugly cry, you know, big drama moment. 
And I said, oh, you know, this happened to me once upon a time and blah, 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 blah. Ah, and I was crying and crying, 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 crying. And finally I stopped crying and she looked at me. And she said, you know what? There's nobody in this bathroom torturing you. There's nobody in this bathroom making you cry except yourself. You're doing this to yourself. And a lot of stress, we're doing it to ourselves. And when we become aware of that, the stress has just become tasks, things that need to be done. Put it on a sticky note. Right now, everything's fine. So why stress about it? Stress doesn't make it happen. But stress makes your breathing change, makes your neurophysiological body change. It does a number to your tissues. It does a number to your brain. It changes your hormones. And people have to realize that stress is not a badge of honor. It's a disease of the mind. And typically at this exact moment, they don't have anything at this moment to stress about. And they have to learn how to be present. And one of the best ways to become present, coordinate your body and your breath at this moment. <sighs> Everything's good at this moment. That's great. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say about uh, the subject of pranayama while we're on it? Maybe a particular pranayama techniques that people can use to sort of start to uh, integrate their body and mind. And, uh, you know, I, I always recommend that. I always recommend that before somebody starts a pranayama technique, understand what the pranayama technique is for. You know, so usually when I'm teaching at the university, I have all the students start off by learning basic abdominal breathing and just, you know, relaxing the belly completely, allowing a full inhale, and then upon exhale, gently tucking the abdomen in a little bit. A lot of people just have to learn how to do that mechanics. And sometimes it can take up to 10 minutes just to teach somebody how to do basic abdominal breathing. And I say, you know, if it's difficult for you, just every hour set a timer on your phone and take 20 slow, delicious breaths. Slow, delicious breaths. You know, not hard, difficult breaths. Just, <sighs> but you know, you have different techniques. You could do, there's a technique called alternate nostril breathing or Nabi Shodhana, and that one's to help clarify the right and left sides of the subtle body, or people call it the Ida, the Pingala. It helps balance the right and left sides of the hemisphere, brings attention to the third eye if it's done appropriately. But, you know, there's contraindications. If you've got like a deviated septum or you've got a lot of sinus problems, it might not be the right breath for you. And then there's other breath techniques like, um, you know, ujjayi breathing. A lot of times ujjayi breathing done with a slight glottis contraction is done to help bring mastery over the mind or victory. Ujjayi means victory. And that can be really beneficial for different mental conditions as well. But, you know, one of the most prized breath techniques is kapalabhati. Kapal, you know, is... If you, if you look at the translation, kapalabhati, it means shining skull. 
and it's a breath technique that it takes a little while to teach somebody to get it down pat, but it's one of the primary breath techniques that helps purify the vitiations away from the mind. It's you know supposed to like shine up your brain a little bit and get rid of the ingrained breathing mental patterns that we hold. You know, if every morning we wake up and we're like this, <gasps> it's time for the day. You know, that's a breathing pattern. Then we go on our day. So if we start and stop our day or intermittently throughout the day, do a specific we're breaking up the patterns that we hold in our breath and creating neurological changes. But not all breaths should be done by a fire. You often see in a Kundalini class, you know, where they're going. Breathing like that, well, if you have the wrong um, breath technique, let's take breath of fire, for instance, and let's say you've had a recent stroke or you have uh, uncontrolled high blood pressure or you have um, you know, certain conditions, you can actually cause death by doing the wrong technique and doing it in the wrong way without proper supervision. So... You know, breath techniques need to be given great mindfulness. Um, certain breath techniques, if they're done wrong or given for the wrong indication, can cause seizures. They can cause um, metabolic disorders. So there's another breath technique called shitli, where it's a cooling breath technique. Well, that might not be the best for somebody who's already kind of cold with poor circulation. You want to give that to the hot tamale person, but you don't want to give breath of fire necessarily to the person who's hot and inflamed. So there's a, a lot of marriage between Ayurveda and yoga to know what breath te technique is appropriate for what person. And it's definitely not one. It should be given to you by a competent trained practitioner. Um, but I usually just tell people, if you want to start with breath work, breath awareness, set a timer on your phone for every hour and every hour take 20 delicious breaths. And don't think about anything during that time. Just <sighs> And every time you feel stressed, if something comes and ruffles your feathers, take 20 breaths again and then respond. And it's a way of retraining the mind and the physiology of the human body. And it can be done. Great. And just the video is breaking up a tiny bit here in the last uh, minute or so. Sorry, I don't know what happened there. That's all right. My it's... internet connection cut out for a moment. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, you were just, uh, finishing talking about, um, some aspects of pranayama and, uh, that certain techniques might not be particularly suited for certain people in different situations. And, um, I think you had basically uh, finished up that point, um, and I'll just let you sort of carry on from where we got cut off, I guess. Yeah, so, you know, we can move on to the, the next limb of yoga, 
Yeah, so we're sort of uh, moving on now from the first four limbs, which are sort of more oriented in the physical world uh, into um, the last four, which are sort of more focused on yogic meditation, I guess. Um, so the first uh, being pratyahara or withdrawal from the senses, I'll just open up uh, your article from the blog and carry on from there. So pratyahara is the fifth limb of yoga that facilitates the withdrawal of senses from sense objects. Every day people are inundated with incoming data in the form of sound, taste, sight, smell, and touch. Many people live in a state of constant sensory overstimulation. The practice I was making sure that we're still recording. <laughs> the practice of Pratyahara involves pulling the mind away from the outer world stimuli to settle into silence and create a still peaceful mind. Pratyahara reduces agitation and mental rajas and uh, vidiations. This practice allows the yogi to become more aware of subtleties and extrasensory data. Only at this point can a yogic practitioner begin a solid course toward connecting to the infinite source. And you give a quote from the Anapurana Upanishad. In order to realize the self, renounce everything. Having cast off all, assimilate yourself to that which remains. So how would you like to expand from there, Kalavati? Yeah, this is really important. You know, a lot of times, first we identify ourselves with what's outside of us. I am not that, I'm not that, I'm that, I'm that. But who are we in the absence of eating? Who are we in the absence of all of our sense organs? Who are we when we quiet the body down and quit moving it and doing things? Who are we when we still our breath and come into a peacefulness of our breath? Who are we when we're no longer looking outside and seeking outside? When we turtle up, or practice pratyahara, and we stop bringing in the bombardment of sensory input, then you look inside yourself. Now who are you? Now what are you inside? What do you find in there? Do you still find old trauma coming up? You know, a lot of people will do pratyahara and they're like this, I keep having flashbacks and distractions and this and that and this and that. I say, yep, you're going to have to do svadhyaya and work through that. You're going to have to study that. You're going to have to see what that means to you. Journal it, get it out, see a counselor, release it, drop it, roto-rooter that. And then when all those things stop arising in the state of pratyahara, when you can stop looking around, stop smelling, stop talking, stop moving, and find the stillness in the body, sthiram sukham, and the stillness with the breath, and you close off all your sensories, 
then you find the stillness in the mind. And that is where the journey starts. That's where the real yoga or the good stuff really starts to happen. So Pratyahara is a very important thing for people to do. People will say, well, I'm going to sit down and meditate. And I'll say, okay, good job. You sit down and meditate. And they'll say, yeah, but then I, I was thinking about this. And I was distracted about that. I was thinking I was hungry. I was thinking I had this, 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 this. I'll say, you have shiny object syndrome. Stop thinking outside of yourself. Stop letting your mind race around through your desire to fulfill something in your sense organs. Quiet them all down. And even better yet, now direct all of your sense organs towards your object that you want to accomplish, your sankalpa, your intention. What are you trying to do? Okay, yoke with your soul. Dedicate all those sense organs to that task. Don't let them wander around. Don't use them outwardly. Use them inwardly. Yeah, it's, it's you know, also Pratyahara. We want to take a look at the cessation of seeking gratification through our sense organs so that we can dedicate all of our awareness inward towards that soul's journey, which takes concentration. And that, that would be the next limb is the concentration. You know, if you're busy chewing on something, you concentrate, your mind is there. Your consciousness is on that, that taste or that action, that movement, that abnormal breathing pattern. All of that has to become still, all of it. And it needs to be stiram sukham, steady with ease. Uh, I feel like that is almost a great sort of summary of the subject in itself. Is there anything that you want to say other than that on the subject of withdrawal from the senses? It's fairly It's pretty subject. Simple. I feel it's... like... Okay, um, so let me just get back to the article and um, from Pratyahara, we're moving on to Dharana, which is basically mindfulness or one-pointed concentration uh, from my understanding and my notes. Uh, so what you had to say about Dharana, uh, Dharana means concentration. Practicing mindfulness and concentration propels us toward our higher aims and final states of yoga. There are many different training methods, such as candle gazing or chanting. Many people who want to meditate exclaim, I cannot control my mind in meditation. There are too many distractions. It wanders all over the place. And you say, my response is always, then who is controlling your mind? It takes practice and determination. If it was easy, everybody would be liberated into enlightenment. 
yogic concentration creates mental fixation and laser mental capacities. Uh, and you quote the Bhagavad Gita, the mind acts like an enemy for those who do not control it. Yeah. So, that's, that's such an important statement that the mind does act like an enemy to those who don't control it. And, you know, like I said in the article, that's the biggest complaint people give me. Well, first of all, meditation is boring. I got bored. I say, no, you got distracted is what you got. You weren't bored. You were distracted. Because when we are looking at dharana, we're looking at developing a deep, unshakable, unbreakable concentration. Like the Terminator. You know, it's just like, that concentration is there. And in order to get to that place, we have to look at all the previous steps. Are we distracted over something mean we did? Are we, um, you know, distracted by something that we needed to do more self-study of? All of these things that we did prior to that stage is like an insurance policy or a accentuating level of success. So if we're not doing asana, the physical body may just be like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> or we're just not aware and grounded within our physical body. If we don't do our breath work, we may still be breathing stressfully from the day. We may not have prana flowing appropriately. We want to be able to have not only mastery of our sense organs, but now withdraw them all and go inward and concentrate on what? Well, that depends on your practice. Some people concentrate for astral travel. Some people concentrate for prayer. Some people concentrate on light, inner light. Some people concentrate on inner sound. It depends on what lineage you are from and what your end goal is. Some people concentrate on mantra, japa, and they do, you know, repetition after repetition after repetition. But it takes concentration to stay there. You know, if you sit there for 30 minutes and chant nonstop and you're not losing focus of your breath and your body is nice and still and stable and your breath is still and stable and you're able to hold that mantra that entire time, you're developing that concentration that's required to dive even deeper. Right. And so this is sort of where all of the limbs of yoga start to complement one another and all start to merge in a way or the, you start to see that they're all happening all at once and they're there to sort of uh, support each other in their purpose. So pratyahara or withdrawal from the senses in one way is required prior to dharana or one-pointed concentration but at the same time they're not happening at a different time it's all happening at once and it's all 
it's not uh, necessarily like a, a clear set path, but that you're, but that all of the limbs of yoga are are happening all at once in in one way, and so as um, you were saying with. Uh, your breathing can be a reflection of your inner state in the same way uh, as we're trying to find uh, an inner stillness. There's almost uh, that same feeling in a non-physical way of that uh, rhythmic sense of being that you sort of experience from finding that state in the in the physical world so uh when you're talking about this uh state that's needed to you need to be able to harness this state of one-pointed concentration in order to really step forward from there right so it, it, so uh, all of these aspects start to become really, uh, I guess, integral to uh, self-advancement in yoga. Uh, the more that we can learn to observe our inner world, with a peaceful mind or a calm mind, the more that we'll start to see benefits in our outer world and the more that you'll start to see your yogic practice and your meditation lead into every aspect of your life, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. I often say, can you take your yoga off the mat? Can you take your yoga or your meditation off of your pillow? and out into the world? Can you keep that breath awareness, that body fluidity, that mind harnessing through all activities you do? Mm -hmm. Takes and training. And so I guess that is the definition of Dhyana is the stillness of mind or coming to a point of meditation. So, um, did you want to say anything about uh, sort of the, the difference, I guess, between Dharana versus Dhyana before we move on to talking about Dhyana? Yeah, you know, that's, that's an important thing that a lot of people will ask, you know, what's the difference between Dharana and Dhyana? Well, dharana is a prerequisite. You have to have that focus. You have to have that concentration to harness the ability to deeply meditate. You know, and then there's different types of meditation. So when we're looking at, you know, dhyana, some people will say, oh, I meditate all the time. You know, I listen to this guided meditation. We take a forest walk and, and she leads us past the fairies and the flowers. I'll say, nah, that's not what I would call meditation. That's a good start. That's a good start. 
definitely is a good start. Some people, they, they need that guided meditation. But when we're doing more of a proper meditation, our concentration is so focused and so controlled that the monkey mind, I have, sometimes I describe our, our mind like a puppy on the carpet. It just never does what you want it to do. You know, you're just like, what's going on over there? But we have to be in control of our minds. We have to be able to harness the ability to direct where we want our minds to go. And then we go into more of a proper meditation where there's complete stillness, complete silence of the mind, and more yoking can occur at that point. Yeah, so if you want to read the section about um, dhyana, we'll, we'll elaborate on that a little bit more too. Sure. So it says... Uh... After the preceding steps have been mastered, one can more successfully practice dhyana. Dhyana is meditation. This is the seventh limb of yoga where the yogi has an effortless stillness of mind. This state of mind brings attainment of moksha, where all suffering and fluctuations are liberated. And um, yeah, perhaps we'll uh, else. Uh, I'll stop there before I move on to the quote, because the quote is sort of on a maybe slightly different subject. Did you have anything else that you wanted to say about Diana? Uh... Yeah, with Diana, you know, some people describe it as having that unshakable concentration, parana, which merges you with another object. So merging into meditation, what, first of all, we have to determine what is the object that we want to merge with? Is it God? Is it our soul? Is it our holy guardian angel? You know, what, what was the sankalpa? What was the intention for the meditation or the yogic practice to begin with? And once we're able to achieve that level of concentration, once we're able to achieve that mastery of the mind, then we begin to yoke. And it's not always even yoking with just God. Some people are able to yoke with other human beings through their mind, through concentration and meditation. And it just shows that, you know, we're all interconnected. We're all part of one and can access each other. Some can, not all can. But ultimately, we want to use that to radiate our soul, radiate our soul's purpose, to receive that, that direct communication or that direct connection with our soul, that eventually we go into full Ishvara Pranadana and we relinquish the driver or the reins to our soul, not the conditioned monkey mind, not the mind that says, well, society says, etc. And we begin to really move into a working cooperation with our soul but meditation is very important people say well how long should i meditate how should i meditate what type of meditation should i do i'll say well it kind of depends on who you are some people need to start off with 
walking meditation because they have ants in their hands or they're going to fall asleep, one or the other. I'll say, okay, try walking meditation. Some people need to start off like a type of pranayama meditation and then work towards that stillness. Some people need to do meditation that actually isn't full meditation. It's the preparatory stage for meditation. But you'll have to get there somehow. And people will say, well, after 10 minutes, I found out that, you know, I was distracted five times. And I'll say, okay, well, maybe tomorrow you'll only be distracted four times. And how long would you say you were distracted? If you sat down for 20 minutes of meditation, what percentage of your meditation would you say you were truly focused? 10 minutes of that? Five minutes of that? Only the last minute of that? And were you distracted all the rest of the time? Well, then you made progress. You meditated for one hour or one minute out of 20. Maybe tomorrow you'll have two minutes out of the 20 that are successful, et cetera, et cetera. And to you know, build yourself up to hours and hours of meditation, again, it should be stiram sukham. It should be steady with enjoyment. Meditation should be enjoyable. There's some days I can't wait. I wake up in the morning, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna go meditate right now because I wanna feel that deep dropping into soul awareness, soul presence. And it just keeps getting deeper and deeper sometimes. But, you know, it, it is an art, it's not always easy. But that's where we start accessing higher levels of consciousness or even other consciousnesses. It's where we really begin to yoke with things beyond the monkey mind. And it just all depends on what your samkalpa was. What was your intention when you went into it? Typically, I ask people just to set their samkalpa to be in fullest connection with their soul. And whatever it is that they believe is God. But, you know, like my Guru Ma says, the one, the infinite, it's inside of you. So go inside of you and find it. Bring it out. Beckon it. Invite it. Don't be constricted to it. Adjust the body. Let the body be stiram sukham, at ease. Adjust the breath. Let the, the breath be at ease. Train the mind to concentrate so you can go inward. Fish it out. Bring it out. Radiate it out. It's going all the way back to that analogy of the mirror. If your soul is this just beautiful, reflective surface coming from deep inside of you and reflecting outward, what's clouding up the mirror? Is it the food? Is it the body? Is it the breath? Is it the mind? Is it that mean thing you did that's disturbing you somehow? Is it the lack of finding contentment? Is it X, Y, Z, fill in the blank, life is complicated. But it's about really mastering all aspects of yourself and coming into the now the now, right here, right now. And then being able to just silence everything and go inward. 
and then say, well, hello there. And there you are. That's great. Um, I'm going to uh, read the quote that you ended the section on Diana with. Um, Uh, which is from uh, Sri Sri Adi Shakti Ma. Uh, if you chant the sacred syllable Om, your mind naturally returns to a peaceful state of stillness, which eventually becomes emptiness. The light of the soul shines within everyone, and the divine light holds that light to itself. If you can discover that pure illumination and power within yourself, the purpose of your life has been fulfilled. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly along the lines of what I was saying with the mirror, to mm -hmm. clarify that mirror. Or another analogy that's often used is being a crystal clear surface of water, a beautiful lake that is still and motionless, reflects the sun impeccably. But if you throw a rock in the water, it takes a while to stop the ripples and the distortion of the beautiful reflection of the water. If you keep thrashing around in the water saying, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, etc., etc., If you just still your perception of the world, just bring your perception to stillness, bring the consciousness inward, just silence it. Then all the ripples across the water, stop moving and then the reflection becomes pure it becomes pristine and then everything that comes off of it is truth rather than the distorted ripples you know because when we are mentally vitiated mentally disturbed mentally stressed fearful, etc. It affects the body, it affects the mind, it affects the breath, it affects everything. We're reflecting those ripples. We're not reflecting the true reflection of the soul. We're reflecting what has happened and what we're perceiving. So it's, it's, it's an interesting concept, you know, because then that, that leads us to the next limb which is Samadhi. Right. And so um, I guess from there, I'll just move on to what you had to say about the final limb of yoga being Samadhi uh, or super consciousness. The eighth limb of yoga when examining, sorry, I'll just start that again. Samadhi or super consciousness is the eighth limb of yoga when examining the eight limb model. Samadhi means continuous union, super consciousness, or continual union. The mind becomes fully still, enabling equilibrium and extrasensory insight. At this stage, the yogic practitioner can access intelligence, higher consciousness, and enlightenment. And uh, you have a quote from the Adhyatma Upanishad. Uh, dissolve the self in the supreme self as the pot space is dissolved in infinite space. Then, as the infinite 
be silent forever, O sage. And uh, I love that quote. Um, and I made a couple of notes on the idea of samadhi and um, just a couple of things that came to mind that I sort of wanted to run by you and see is sort of your uh, idea on them. Um, in that samadhi is something that has sort of been spoken of by different names in different traditions and on different spiritual paths and whether you know it's called nirvana to the buddhists or gnosis to a gnostic or however you want to coin it um it's uh, implying this sort of dissolution of the self into the all or the union of shiva and shakti some have called it or uh is there any anything that you sort of want to say on on that sort of uh, aspect of the subject of um, of samadhi being this sort of point of uh, of yoking or union between the self and the greater self, or the self and the divine, or the the absolute, or what have you. And it's really a, a complex type of concept. But a lot of times I use different analogies. So for instance, when we take a look at, let's say the tattvas, and we go from all the way from the bottom to all the way to the top. We understand that after we ascend mentally, you know, we're like, okay, well, what am I other than my physical body? What am I other than my mind? What am I other than et cetera, et cetera, my life and et cetera. We realize that we are an extension. We're like one ray of the sun of that infinite creation but you know then we get lost in the individual ego me i life on the stage etc when we start letting go of that story when we start letting go of a lot of aspects that brought us to where we are then we free up the story for more continual or a state of samadhi where you allow your soul to be not the conditioned ego mind. you know I will let's take for Kali. let's say she has one million strands of hair imagine a hair waking up one day and saying Oh my gosh, I am part of her. I am just one emanation of her. Or we take the ocean, 
for example, and the drop of water, for example. Could you imagine one little molecule of H2O in the ocean screaming, woe is me, oh my gosh, I'm all by myself, I'm suffering. Right. And then when somebody informed that drop of water, you are the ocean. Become one with the ocean, merge with the ocean, flow with the ocean, stop fighting against the stream of the wave. Things change when we go into that surrender, when we go into that stillness, when we've studied ourselves enough and we know what is my dharma? What is my life purpose? Why am I here? What kind of karma am I creating? What kind of actions am I taking or not taking to support that path? And how can I get out of my own way and quit fighting against the tide of why I came here. You know, samadhi, some people say it's complete stillness, silence. But can that be taken off of the stillness? Can somebody then stand up on their mat and still be in a state of samadhi? I tell them, I don't know. I'm not there yet. See, my dogs want to chat now, too. Yeah, my neighbor's so, dog was barking a moment ago, too. You know, it's a matter of diving as far into that ocean of the soul as you're daring to be. And in order to dive all the way into that depth of your soul, you have to relinquish you know, you can't, you can't go in there with all of your mental demons. Otherwise, that's all you're going to find in there, a bunch of mental demons. You're going to be like, oh my gosh, because it's going to reflect that back out to you. When you cross that, that ocean and you get deep, deep, deep in with the exploration for that union, you need santosha. You need contentment. You need stillness. Right, and you're now drawing to mind the quote that you opened the article with, where, uh, it, which is a Sufi proverb, which just said, I looked uh, within, or sorry, I searched for God and found only myself. I searched for myself and found only God. And so it's yeah. drawing to mind sort of the water molecule uh, just in the ocean right it's um you can you can fight against that nature or you can actually look at uh, at the self for what it is and yeah. start looking towards accepting that and accepting your place with in the universe or, and accepting your dharma or you can sort of not do that and find yourself feeling just entirely out of place in the world even though all it takes is that shift in perspective to look and see that oh i am the ocean right yeah and and to love what you are you know that was one of the things that we've been talking a lot about satsang this week is love love of the one 
in order to find and feel and experience and merge with the ananda, the bliss, the love of the divine, the love that is the divine, the unjudgmental, ever still unconditional love of ananda. You have to unconditionally study yourself, know thyself, accept thyself, change where you need to change, adjust what you need to adjust to come into alignment, and then find that absolute love for yourself. Because if you don't love yourself, you're telling the divine, I don't love you either. That pushes divinity away. If we have enemies in life, oh, I hate you. That person is also part of divinity. You have to let that go. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we are separating ourselves. It's like one water molecule saying to the other one, don't sit too close to me, you dirty little water molecule. <laughs> and it's silly. <laughs> and so we want to look for that, that love, that divinity in everything through those you know, sacred visions oh my goodness, look at that. Look at this divinity presenting itself through sacred taste, through sacred hearing, through sacred smell, sacred touch, sacred love of the universe and of the self. The more we do that, the more it reflects back at us, the more it reflects through us to other people and back to us. I mean, that doesn't mean, you know, be foolish. There's some people out there who wanna harm other people. You got to be wise enough to do that. You don't just wander out of the house like, oh, I just love everybody. You got to be wise too. But when we really look at the science of yoga, it's about full self discovery, full self disclosure, full self union. Because you can look your whole life for God and only find yourself. Right. And you just uh, brought to mind something that um, I was thinking about earlier when we took a break and I kind of wanted to see your opinion on it. Um, and that um, recently I've had someone uh, sort of express to me that they didn't understand the, um, I guess, sort of the tantric perspective that all aspects of existence are part of the divine or are sacred. And so many aspects of what we've been talking about tonight are, uh, or we've been talking about many aspects of yoga, which require the yogi or the student or the person to look within or to face certain aspects of the self that might not be beautiful or that might not be nice to acknowledge or uh, and so I just sort of wanted to um, see what your opinion was on uh, the idea of uh, incorporating aspects of existence into your worldview or into your spirituality that aren't necessarily nice or beautiful but that or what would you say to a person who has trouble with uh 
with the way that a, another person might <clears throat> use those symbols to empower themselves, right? Like, because it's not that I want to necessarily hold on to these negative images or these negative ideas, but that they do need to be addressed at least for a certain period of time or they need to be conquered within the self, if nothing else, right? Well, you know, what you were saying reminds me a lot about the concept of being able to have equal state of mind, whether what you are tasting or experiencing is bitter or sweet. To be able to manifest the same level of presence and awareness without disturbance as much as possible, no matter what is happening in life. But really, you gotta do practice on the past first. Can you look at your worst life trauma and say, okay, all right, yeah, that happened, that happened that's no longer causing ripples on my ocean floor or my beautiful lake surface. It's no longer tainting my current moment. I have stilled those ripples, even though it was a horrible experience. I have digested that incident. I have come to terms with it. I have studied the effects it had on me and now I can be at peace with it. Doesn't mean it was great. Doesn't mean you condoned it, but it's already happened. Come to stillness over it. You know, certain traditions, they practice, you know, offensive things so that we condition ourselves to um, not react to offensive things. And, you know, it reminds me also of how people will say, but how can you explain all the horrible things that are happening in this world? Is that God too? How can God exist with all these horrible things happening? Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult for people to realize that it's all of creation. There's the yin, the yang. There's the up, the down. There's the uncomfortable and the comfortable. There's the sukha and the dukkha. It's all one whole. It reminds me of one of the beautiful Kali pujas that I like to read. And it says, Kali is beautiful. Kali is sweet. Kali is loving. Kali is the mother. Kali is fierce. Kali is horrible. Kali is violent. Kali is angry. She's everything. All the names. She is pure. She is impure. She is light. She is dark. She is fill in the blank. It's everything. It's up to us how we're going to navigate all of that. Nobody said that the infinite source was going to serve up tea and cookies and wrap us in a blankie and read us a nighttime story. Nobody said that. 
we're on a rock spinning through space. <laughs> it's the Kali Yuga, you know? It's like, hop back up and survive. People will say, but what about evil? And I'll say, well, what about evil? What's your definition of evil, actually? Would you say that the cat in the backyard who just viciously gobbled up a cute little mouse, is that cat evil? Or is the cat simply acting upon its own nature? Should the cat go to hell, quote unquote? Because the cat's so evil. It ate 10 mice this week. That vicious evil thing. It's just the cat's nature. Just all depends on our perception of the world. And what's your goal in it? What's your role in it? What's your dharma? Are you here to make it a more beautiful place? Are you here to heal people? Are you here to be a Gnostic? Are you here to be, you know, um, X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. Everybody's here for a different reason. The reason why my daughter's here is not why I'm here. Somehow our paths crossed. So maybe we can find some nice alchemy there and benefit each other and somehow at least practice ahimsa, don't be a creep. You know, don't steal, don't oppress. Don't make people feel bad and judge them and compare. Just exist, coexist. Right. Keep your own side of the street clean, you know? Keep your insides clean. Keep your outsides clean. Be kind to each other. Do some seva. Do some service. Give to other people somehow. Create some good action. What's action? Karma. Create good karma. Do something good. Go help out. You're stuck in a pity pot, uh, a, a pity party? Go volunteer and do something, you know? Go work at a convalescent home or volunteer to, you know, pet dogs at a homeless shelter. Maybe you get off the pity pot is what I tell people. It'll make you feel good to be of service. You know, in the Bhagavad Gita, they, they talk about four divisions of yoga. You know, karma yoga, your actions, your deeds. They talk about jnana yoga, your knowledge accumulation. But one of the other ones that's very important is bhakti yoga. Mm -hmm. Where's your devotion? Where's your faith? What do, you, what do you have faith in? What do you have devotion in? And are you doing it with tapas, with passion? Are you doing it with purity, purity of heart, purity of mind? That's yoga. Right, and I think that um, yoga is an incredibly powerful thing in that it, that it does have something to offer any person, really, in that no matter, and that it, no matter where you're coming from, um, that there is something that could be benefited from incorporating certain aspects of yogic practice into our daily lives. And so I was really happy to uh, have you contribute this article and to be able to 
sit down and talk to you about all of these different aspects of just how people can, you know, start to incorporate aspects of yoga into their daily life and begin to use it uh, for personal transformation. And there, and that is something that is true is that there are so many different angles that you can take to come at this, whether it's, you know, as you were saying, Nana yoga or bhakti yoga or karma yoga, or there, there are infinite ways that you can approach the subject and you could spend a lifetime on studying just one of those methods, let, uh, let alone uh, all of them, right? And so the yoga is such a, a vibrant and rich tradition that, but then again, for someone who is just simply looking for the the health benefits there there's plenty of that out there as well right so if okay. yeah you know i would say in the last hmm, seven years or so of my medical practice at the hospital there wasn't hardly one patient that came out that did not get something that came from yoga you know whether i said okay i want you to do these stretches I want you to be aware where your pain is. I want you to study it. I want you to do this breathing pattern. I want you to concentrate on this at that time of pain instead of this. You know, even if you look at things like Lamaze for child delivery, there's a lot of yogic aspects of it. But, you know, just being a better person, coming at peace with the people around you everybody can benefit from something to do with yoga. The only problem is, or one of the problems is a lot of people think that yoga is a religion or some sort of, you know, cult like structure, or it's just this physical fitness thing that only, you know, cute fit little bodies with specialized pants called yoga pants can do. And they got to go to a studio and this kind of stuff. And I say that that's all rubbish. You know, you don't need any of them to do yoga. If you just breathe today, you've practiced yoga. If you just study yourself today, you've practiced yoga. If you're just kind and offer yourself in service today, that's yoga. If you think of the divinity outside of you or inside of you and you sing a song to a flower, that's yoga. And that is, uh, I feel, a really powerful message that I've, uh, in the past weeks and months, I've been putting a lot of work into the Dharma Warrior blog and one of my main objectives in this entire project help people to enrich their lives with the practice of yoga and so I was incredibly excited about this uh, article and this entire collaboration and to be able to uh, sit down with you and just sort of take the 
the article that you so graciously uh, submitted as the first guest blog post and uh, to be able to take the subjects and expand upon them in a little more depth than, or a lot more depth uh, than we were able to go into in the article and it's been really great to do so and I feel that people will really be able to take a lot from this discussion and that it will be able to help people uh, come to a sort of greater understanding of themselves to help people incorporate some of these ideas into their life or to maybe you know get over some of the hang-ups that they've had on on doing so or on or I know a lot of people that I talk to uh, really or I've been teaching a free class every Sunday in a, a, at the local community garden that I've been taking care of. And there's a couple people who have come up to me afterwards. One of them recently was a man who lives nearby and he was just asking me about the, the garden and the, and the yoga class that I've been doing. And he has type two diabetes and have been experiencing a uh, really bad neuropathy in his feet and he uh, is on painkillers and he said that he's going to start coming out and I haven't seen him yet, but I really wish that he would because um, he was kind of surprised when I told him that just using simple breathing techniques and simple postures that I was able to sort of reclaim control over my life even though my pancreas died at age 32 and I was suddenly I went from being a person who was incredibly physically active and physically fit my entire life and to uh to having a lot of struggles and uh it, it gave me the ability to reclaim at least some sort of semblance of control over my life in the beginning. And then eventually I regained an actual control over my physical body and my mind where I felt like it was starting to, that control was starting to slip away from me. And he was basically in tears by the end of our conversation saying that he wanted nothing more than to be able to feel his toes again and to be able to picture just having that control over his life again. And so it was a couple of weeks ago that I was talking to this person and I really, I hope that they do come to a place where they're ready to just say like, okay, this is my body. This is what I have to work with. And that's all that I have. And until I come to that place where I'm ready to, acknowledge that you can't move forward right uh, and so until we become comfortable or ready to acknowledge where we're at we can't move ahead from where we are and so i feel like this will be a great sort of stepping stone for some people who 
will come across this video now and in the future looking for ways to use yoga to transform their life. And I'm incredibly thankful that we were able to collaborate in this way and sit down and talk about it. And um, I guess I'll leave it up to you if you have anything else that you wanted to say in conclusion or, uh, and I look forward to speaking to you again and uh, hopefully uh, we can collaborate in the future and come up with, more ways that we can help people uh, incorporate yoga into their daily lives and use it as a tool for self-actualization and personal transformation. So I really appreciate you having me on and letting me share my perspective of it. And, um, you know, my experience with yoga has been completely life transforming, completely transforming of my life. If you were to see me before I started yoga, I do not look like the same person. I do not feel like the same person. I do not act like the same person. And I will never be the same that I was before and for the better. So any people who are listening to this, I strongly encourage you to look into how yoga can fit into your life and just start somewhere you know, baby steps. It's like we talked about in the very beginning. It's like a huge spiral staircase. Sometimes you run up two steps. Sometimes you run up two flights of steps. Sometimes you run up 20 flights of steps. Sometimes you have those aha moments. Sometimes you're really tired halfway up. Stop and rest a while. Don't expect everything all at once. You know, it's like you can't get your black belt in a weekend. It takes a long time. It takes practice. It takes dedication. Dedication to yourself. Dedication to your highest soul manifestation. So I thank you for having me on. And oh, I thank you for uh, being my first guest on the podcast. And uh, uh, for anyone watching, I will put links in the description to uh, Kalavati's website and blog at healthiervibrations.com. And uh, at dharmawarrior.net, you can find uh, links to her social media and other uh, online resources. And I guess for now, we can just say so long. And it's been incredible. And thank you so much for, again, for contributing and for being here. And I feel that we had a great discussion. And I look forward to talking to you again. So. Thank you and namaste. Namaste.